as he's spinning back, I see a large butcher knife in his right hand. And then he takes his left hand, uh, puts it with his right hand, so now he's got a two-hand grip on the knife, and steps and thrusts the knife right into Dennis's chest. And I actually see the knife go into Dennis. Uh, Dennis is on his back. The guy has jumped on top of him. Uh, he's got both of his hands above his head, and he's trying to crash the knife down on Dennis's throat. And Dennis grabs, manages to reach up and grab his wrist. So when I get there, the suspect has two hands on the knife. You were involved in the process of hiring this person, of training this person, of putting a gun in their hand and telling them when they are allowed to use this. And so the default assumption should be that this officer did what he or she was trained to do, was hired to do, was given a gun to do. That notion of staying in the fight when you might believe you're at a disadvantage, that's okay, because if you give up, you're done. If you don't give up, you might just well persevere and you might just prevail. You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast. Brought to you by the Assist the Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community. And now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree and we all make mistakes. But together we can grow, we can heal. And we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. Welcome back ATO family. Today we are sitting down with a unique individual. He's seen different sides of the first responder world. He always wanted to be a LAPD officer, and he persisted and made that dream happen when he hired on in 1980. His mission at this time was complete. Then a different path was formed. In July of 1981, just four months after joining LAPD, David found himself thrust into a deadly force confrontation as a knife-wielding suspect was attempting to stab his partner. David had to take a life. He then began down a path of continual learning as he researched at the National Police Institution and was a 1997 recipient of the American Society of Criminology, Ruth Caven, Young Scholar Award. He has served on two National Academy of Sciences committees and is the author of the amazing book, Into the Kill Zone, A Cop's Eye View of Deadly Force. It's our honor to welcome on Dr. David Klinger. Dr. Klinger, thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. You can call me Dave or David. We got it. We'll go with Dave. Very good. Um, welcome back, fans. Uh, I'm Kent Wolverton. I'm here with Joe King today. He's a little under the weather, so I'll be doing most of the talking. Um, we've also got Major Steve Bishop with us today. Thank you. And we've got the legendary, iconic, beautiful Steve Claggett. 
Just call me old and broken down. Let's go with that. <laughs> well, I was getting there. I but... knew Steve before it was old and broken down, though, so you can call him beautiful and all those other things. Well, if I think you want. I think we all knew Steve back in the day, but so I'm taking it from all angles here. All angles. All angles. All okay, angles. thanks, guys. <laughs> no, thanks for being here, guys. Appreciate it. So, Dave, you are a former police officer, a an author. Um, you actually had the title of doctor. Um, let's talk about it. Where? Uh, Where'd you grow up? Well, I was born in New York City on the Upper West Side of Manhattan in French Hospital in 1958 and uh, lived there till 1961. My dad was a professional musician. He was touring around the uh, Northeast, got a permanent job at the University of Miami as a music instructor, classically trained clarinetist, and also then he became the principal clarinetist for the Florida Miami Philharmonic and uh, moved down there. And because he had an academic appointment for nine months, we uh, went back to New York City every summer till I was, I think, seven. Uh, last time I lived in New York was 1965. So I sort of grew up for several years of my life between uh, New York and Miami. And so I got a lot of experience running around uh, the Upper West Side of uh, New York City, I remember, you know, world was different in the 1960s. My two sisters, one who's two years younger, one who's two years older, we used to hop on the subway and run all around the city, and it was a lot of fun. And then the rest of the time, uh, growing up in sort of suburban Miami, then in uh, 1971, when I was 13, moved out to San Diego and went to junior high school and high school there. And uh, then after I got out of high school, I went up to uh, Seattle, to uh, get my undergraduate degree, have a degree in history from Seattle Pacific University. Came back down to Southern California. There was a hiring freeze in uh, L.A., but I always wanted to be an L.A. cop. And so I applied and was working construction until they hired me. And that was in uh, November of 1980. So you basically went to the four corners of the United States. Yep. And, I mean, that's that's a pretty interesting way to grow up. Yeah. Uh, I, I grew up in the small town of Shirts, Texas my entire life, so... Mm-hmm. I can't relate at all to having to move around and adjust to different climates, number one, yeah. uh, just lifestyles, number two. You know, that that makes you a pretty well-rounded person once you get used to all that, huh? I, I think so. And the other thing is it gave me a lot of different understanding of different people coming from different backgrounds, everything from, uh, you know, the hillbillies, so to speak, even though there's no hills in um, rural Miami, but, uh, you know, country folks, so to speak. And then the other thing, I, I did a lot of sports, and playing sports growing up, I think that gives you an understanding of two things. It gives you an understand at least two things, understanding that different people can work together when they come together on, on a team, and the other thing is when you stick together, you can overcome all sorts of adversity. And so that notion of teamwork and being able to move, now we would say cross-culturally, but just different people with different backgrounds when I was growing up, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I think that sports are a, a great unifier of, of people, yeah. and you know, it was one of the things... In, in my profession, when I was looking to select team members, that was a big part. And I, I asked everybody, did you play team sports and yeah. what did you play and what was your role? And I think that's a that's a big part of coming together in the greater good. You know, the police department's full of, of former athletes all over the place. Yeah. So good deal. Um, but LAPD, why, why was it LAPD versus anybody else? Well, back then, uh, the Los Angeles Police Department, pre-Rodney King and whatnot, had the reputation of being the best, and um, that was a chunk of it. And another chunk of it was when I was in high school, I had a conversion experience in a Christian church and uh, had met a kid uh, who uh, lived up in Los Angeles who also had a conversion experience, and unfortunately, 
uh, when I was off in college, he went back to the gangs, and he got killed in the drive-by. And one of the things that my evangelical background um, thrust upon me was the notion of find your mission field, find a place where God can put you to use. And um, I started thinking stuff through in college and realized that uh, perhaps I'm being called to try to stop some of this gang warfare that was blowing up all over Los Angeles in the late 1970s when I was in college. And uh, so that interest in being a cop and the pre-murder uh, of my buddy uh, being, you know, I liked LAPD. If you're going to be a cop, go be there. And then my friend got killed, and it all sort of came together in my mind, probably my junior year in college, that, yeah, I should go be a Los Angeles police officer and fight uh, to try to resolve gang conflict up there. Because in the late 1970s, uh, let's just say an awful lot of young men and a few young women were getting killed in these gang warfare exchanges, both in East L.A. and then South Central Los Angeles. And then also, uh, I mentioned my evangelical background, I went and worked at a black church in Jackson, Mississippi, and also Mendenhall, Mississippi, where, by the way, a friend of many of you um, grew up. But at any rate, we'll we can talk about that in a bit. But uh, I uh, went there and got trained in racial reconciliation principles and how to use the gospel as a bridge between uh, different racial groups and so on and so forth. And so I went there to Los Angeles to resolve the gang warfare through a particular evangelical-based lens. And unfortunately, it, it didn't work out as I had anticipated, but I, I felt called, and that's a long answer to your short question about why I, uh, why I went there. And by the way, my, our friend who uh, grew up in Mendenhall, Mississippi, is a guy named Mike Finley who worked LAP, excuse me, worked Dallas PD and worked on the SWAT team for many years, and uh, we've remained friends. So anyhow. Well, we like long answers to short questions around here. There you go. <laughs> it takes up the time. Yeah, no, you're doing, you're doing a great job so far. Okay. Um, any other PDs that you looked at? Any other agencies that you considered? I did. I, I considered Seattle PD. I considered the San Diego City PD, and I considered the San Diego County um, Sheriff's Department. And the reason I considered those other places was because LAPD had a hiring freeze, and I didn't know that I would be able to get a job. And so after I got done with my uh, college education, I actually finished up early. I did an internship at this this church called the Voice of Calvary in Jackson, Mendehall, Mississippi. So I came back to San Diego in probably March, February, March of uh, 1980 and applied to L.A. I had already applied to Seattle when I was up there, applied to San Diego City, applied to the county and L.A. Uh, came through. They, they, they gave me a shout, I think, late October, early November. And then I started uh, November 17, 1980. Wow. What did you think of LAPD's reputation back then was was that part of what made you choose that? Oh yeah, it was it was the best. Um, there was an aura of uh, superiority, an aura of the best go to LA, uh, and uh, that was something that uh, was pretty universal when I looked around the country um, and talked to people from various places. There was a, a great deal of respect for the Los Angeles Police Department. Some of it uh, well deserved, and some of it not so well deserved. Right. So yeah. They've had some big incidents over there. Yeah, they um, have. Yeah, L.A.'s been a – I mean, when you've got that many police officers, you, you're going to have major incidents come through. Yeah. We'll, we'll get into some of those in a little bit. Yeah. Um, what about L.A. in general? What was your What was your perspective on just the city? Um, my sister went to UCLA, and so I had been up there uh, several times and you know, to visit her and whatnot when I was in college and 
earlier in high school. So I, I knew the area a little bit. Um, I grew up, well, didn't grow up. I went to high school at a beach community called Cardiff by the Sea, which, by the way, has the best donut shop in the world, VG Donuts. Um, Time for a field trip. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm serious. Best donut shop in the world. And on top of the fact that the donuts are spectacular, it's about 100 yards, maybe 200 yards from the Pacific Ocean. So you can step outside after you get your donut and feel the sea breeze and smell the the salt and air and all that. It's, it's wonderful. But at any rate, um, so I was a little bit of a beach bum. And there's tons and tons of beaches in Los Angeles, you know, the city beaches, and you have the, the beach cities, Manhattan Beach, Hermosa Beach, all that kind of stuff, all the way up through Santa Monica, and then you run into Malibu, and, and, and I like that feel. Um, the, ur- the, the urban areas um, were, were a mixed bag. There were parts of it that uh, I didn't particularly care for, but, you know, that's life. Yeah, so. sounds horrible. I mean, donuts in, in ocean, yeah. I, don't, <laughs> I don't think I could stand it. Yeah. All right, enough of the softball questions there. Um, let's get into July 25th of 1981. Yeah. You were still a uh, fairly rookie officer at that point? Yeah, so I had worked uh, – I graduated from the academy in March, April of 1980. Um, I could figure that out if we really needed to pin that down. And uh, I did pretty decent in the academy, and so I got to pick my assignment. And as I indicated, I wanted to solve gang warfare in south-central Los Angeles, so – I picked one of the South Central LA uh, divisions to work, and I picked 77th Street. And 77th Street is where the Watts riot in 1965 happened. Then they expanded uh, the number of divisions, and then parts of 77th went into a place called Southeast Division. Uh, So 77th Division, um, South Central Los Angeles. Um, For most listeners, it's probably not going to mean much, but that's historically a very rough, uh, at the time, predominantly black um, community with an exceptionally high crime rate. And uh, so at any rate, I decided to go there, and uh, I got assigned to day watch, and I worked four deployment periods of day watch, 28-day deployment periods, so just under four months. And then I got shifted to the night uh, shift, the PM watch, from 4 to midnight, essentially. And uh, I was there for, oh, maybe three weeks when I got involved in my shooting, um, but what was really wild is the very first shift that uh, I worked on the PM watch. I was with a, working with a guy named uh, Nick MacArthur, who ended up marrying a, a gal named uh, Cindy Jo Inert, who then became Sandy Jo MacArthur, who retired about maybe five, six years ago um, as an assistant chief. And But at any rate, so I was working with Nick, and uh, we got a call of a officer needs help or some such thing, and when we got there, we pulled into the back of the location, and it's a single-family house. And as we're running down the side of the house, we didn't quite know what was going on, but we heard something that might have been gunshots. And then we went to the front of the house, and we see an officer fighting with a female, and we help him figure out what's going on there, get her controlled. And then three officers come flying out of the house maybe just five or six seconds later, and they say, he's shooting at us, he's shooting at us, and it turned into a SWAT call-up. But what had happened is as we're running down the side of the house, uh, we didn't know what was going on, as I said, but what had happened is a guy uh, was holding his wife at gunpoint. There's four LAPD cops in front of the house, and uh, he pulls her back into the house, and three of them went into the house, and then the woman's sister tried to break her way into the house, and this fourth officer was wrestling with her, in the front lawn, and that's what was going on when we got there. At any rate, he executed her, 
shot her twice in the head and then shot himself once. Uh, and that's what we heard. And then the other officers come flying out because they thought they were getting shot at. But this was all, all that was found out afterwards after SWAT went in several hours later. So at any rate, that was my first um, PM uh, shift. Yeah, welcome to Third Watch. Day. Exactly. Yeah. And then my last working shift that I worked the street was uh, 725 when I ended up involved in my shooting. Interesting. Um, let's, let's get into that a little bit. Sure. Um, so I'm, I'm working once again, PM watch. I'm working with a guy named Dennis Acevedo. And I think we might've worked, uh, one, one shift before that, but at any rate, uh, Dennis and I didn't know each other well. And he was a senior officer. He wasn't a training officer per se. He wasn't a P3, but at any rate, we, uh, were working together. And I remember we had to go down to, uh, the jail the main jail downtown for some reason. And then we came back and, uh, we had two previous calls. I'd never dealt with an armed individual who had a knife before. And we dealt with, with two of those. The first one was a kid who's walking down the street with a, you know, Michael Myers giant butcher's knife in his back pocket. And we're like, what's going on here? When I say kid, I'm going to say he was 12 years old, five foot tall, 120 pounds or something. And uh, I'm the passenger officer, and we slide up behind him. So we're probably 20 feet away. And uh, either I or Dennis said, hey, stop, would you? Something to that effect. And the kid looked back at us and then reached back, grabbed the knife, and turned towards us. And Dennis starts screaming at him. He doesn't know what the heck's going to go on. And then the kid dropped the knife, and we called him away from the knife and talked to him, gave him a stern talking to, you know, this is really not a smart thing to do. When uh, a police officer tells you to to, uh, to stop, you don't grab a knife and look at them. Um, keep your hands away from knives in the future. And then uh, on through the shift, um, we got another call where a um, there was a burglary in progress. And uh, we get to the burglary in progress, and I'm containing the back. Dennis is at the front. We got some other officers around. You know, we don't quite know what's going on. This guy wanders out from the interior onto the back porch, and he's waving a knife around, and I'm looking at him. He was probably, I'm 64 now. He's probably about my age uh, back then, and he looks like he might be blind or something. I can't figure it out, but he's waving this knife, and I'm trying to make sense. You know, what the, what in the heck's going on here? At any rate, it turns out he was the homeowner, and he was, in fact, visually impaired, and um, we were able to figure out what happened, and there wasn't a burglary. It was something else. But at any rate, so we had these two other situations where knives were uh, being flashed about South Central L.A., and Dave Klinger happened to be there. And then um, maybe a couple hours after that second one, Dennis and I respond to a call of a uh, man with a gun over on Western Avenue, which is just simply a north-south street in South Central Los Angeles. And we get there, and we clear the area, and nothing is going on. But it's down near Vernon, and um, probably it was either seven or eight days before that, um, a guy, one of our, our guys, a guy named Doug Kershaw and a gal named Angie Lopez, they had killed a guy who uh, was trying to shoot down the LAPD airship with a shotgun. Um, it's effective. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, he didn't realize that, but when he turned towards them, 
and they lit him up, he realized it was really a poor decision. But at any rate, so there had been that shooting right in that area where this other call was. And uh, so we're down near the border with Southwest Division, and a call comes out to assist Southwest Division with a, a potential barricaded gunman. And what had happened was a gentleman came home, and one of the things you need to know about South Central Los Angeles, I imagine it's similar to some areas in Dallas, unfortunately, with high crime rates. Everybody's got burglar bars on their windows and on their front door and on their back door. And what happens is this guy comes home, and uh, there is someone in his house who doesn't belong there. And this someone in the house that doesn't belong there fired a shot at him. And when the guy left, he locked the guy inside. So, or he locked the front door. So our belief was that we had an armed gunman who had fired at a citizen inside this house, which is on the corner of Vernon and LaSalle, which is probably, I'm just going to guess, well, let's just say it's less than 10 blocks away from where we are when we get this, or when we hear the all units assistance being requested from southwest uh, units. So we, uh, we slide down, Dennis is driving, we slide down Vernon, and uh, a sergeant, a guy named Bobby Stadios, who used to work uh, 77th Division, got promoted, um, got, worked as a street cop for uh, 77th Division, got promoted, and now he's a sergeant in Southeast, excuse me, Southwest. At any rate, uh, he says, hey, guys, there is uh, armed barricaded gunmen, yada, yada, yada. We don't have anybody on the west perimeter. You need to go up there and hold that position. So we go, roger that. And we start running down the north side of the uh, Vernon sidewalk. And we had noticed that there was a cluster of citizens who were on the south side of Vernon, directly across the street from the house where the uh, gunman was. And uh, Bobby had said, you also need to clear those citizens out of there. So as we're running down the sidewalk from west to east, um, to secure the western perimeter of this location, we're yelling at all these people, hey, get out of there, get out of there, there's a guy with a gun. Now, why didn't they immediately evacuate the first time we said it? Well, the helicopter is already overhead, and there's clutter and clatter and this and that, and finally, after shouting maybe five or six times, people realize that it's like the light bulb goes on over their head, and they all run west and out of the kill zone, right? Except for one guy. We didn't notice him at first, so at any rate, we make our way to one house away from the location where the um, guy with the gun is, and uh, we hunker down behind a white Cadillac that was parked in the house adjacent, and uh, we're, we got our, our pistols out, and we're looking, and we're hunkered down behind the Cadillac, and uh, I can't remember if I noticed or Dennis noticed, but one of us noticed there's a guy across the street over our right shoulder who didn't leave. And I shouted him, Dennis shouts at him, you know, and this is in the book, um, you know, get out of there. There's a man in the house with a gun, this and that. And the other thing, he refuses to move. And when I say refuses to move, it's that he just was non-responsive. He's just looking at us. And I'm thinking to myself, and these are thoughts that I had 41 and a half years ago, um, maybe he doesn't speak English. He's a black guy. Maybe he's from the Dominican Republic or he's Cuban. He speaks Spanish. Maybe he is Haitian, he speaks French, he doesn't, doesn't understand what we're telling him, or maybe he can't hear us because of the helicopter. And those are things that I'm thinking. And then Dennis says, I'm going to go over there and get him out of there. And so when Dennis says that, I'm really focused on the objective now, the, the house with the guy with the gun in it. And so I take my attention off of Dennis 
as he's running across the street and I'm focused on the house. And I'm thinking to myself, the suspect inside is going to cap at Dennis and I'm going to have to shoot him. A shooting is about to happen. That is what's going on in my mind. And so I'm really focused on that. And then several seconds later, I hear over the din of the helicopter and everything else, um, get your fucking hands off me. You can't tell me what to do. So this guy was shouting. That's how loud it was. I could hear it over the helicopter. And so I turned my attention from directly in front of me to my right, and I'm watching what's going on, and Dennis and this guy are talking, and I can't hear what's going on, but it's an animated discussion. Dennis is obviously telling them, you know, what's going on, you need to get out of here. And um, after maybe, I'm going to say three to five seconds of this, it appears that Dennis has convinced the guy. The guy takes a step west away from Dennis, and Dennis then reaches with his left hand to grab the guy's right elbow to escort him away. And as soon as Dennis does that, the guy pulls his right arm away from Dennis. He's got a Nike, a green Nike bag or a brown Nike bag, a sports bag underneath his left uh, arm, and he reaches into that bag and then spins back. And... Um, as he's spinning back, I see a large butcher knife in his right hand. And then he takes his left hand, uh, puts it with his right hand. So now he's got a two hand grip on the knife and steps and thrusts the knife right into Dennis's chest. And I actually see the knife go into Dennis. And I'm like, holy mackerel, what in the world just happened here? My partner just got stabbed. This isn't good. And then the guy pulls back with one hand and he's holding the knife so that the blade is pointed straight down and the handle tip is pointed straight up. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, this is just a split second. Did I, did I miss see that? Did he, is this a gun? And he pushed Dennis and now he's about to shoot him. And then he pulls the knife up above his head. And as he's pulling the knife up above his head, I go, oh crap, that is a knife. And so I'm crouched down behind the vehicle as all this is going on. And this is happening, you know, code quick. And then when I realize it's a knife and he, has the knife up he then tries to stab Dennis with an overhand and I think I describe it in the book as like Anthony Perkins in uh, the movie Psycho and that's what he's looking like and as he's trying to stab Dennis the first time Dennis throws his hands up and manages to block it now I'm getting up out of my crouch to run across the street because I've got to help my partner and by the time I get up and this is once again it doesn't take me that long to get up from my crouch um, Dennis is backpedaling the man is pressing the attack. He keeps trying to stab Dennis. Dennis keeps trying to or successfully parries the blows somehow. And after he takes maybe two or three steps, this is taking place on the sidewalk, and he's moving at a little bit of an angle towards the street, and he trips over the parkway, the little grass strip, falls, and then the guy jumps on top of him. And this is all happening as I'm running across the street. And by the time I get there, uh, Dennis is on his back. The guy has jumped on top of him so that one knee is on Dennis's right side, the other knee is on Dennis's left side. He's got his hands above his head and he's trying to bring the knife down. Uh, he's got both of his hands above his head and he's trying to crash the knife down on Dennis's throat because Dennis is pinned on the ground. And Dennis grabs, manages to reach up and grab his wrist. So when I get there, um, suspect has two hands on the knife. The knife is less than a foot away from Dennis's throat. Um, Dennis has both of his hands with his elbows obviously uh, bent, and they're fighting over the knife. And I'm a dumb rookie. I was trained by the guy who taught shooting policy in LAPD. We'll never criticize you for 
trying to save a life. We'll never criticize you for not shooting. So do everything you can to try to avoid a shooting. And I'm thinking to myself, with four hands, we'll be able to control the knife. So I reach in. Oh, and by the way, um, I had just switched from a brake front holster to a holster to a clamshell holster. And when I went to holster my weapon, it just fell to the ground because the clamshell works differently. It's not important for the, re- for the listeners to know, but it's just a different system. And so my gun's on the ground, but it's on the ground to my right, and this is happening to my left, so I don't worry about my gun because I'm between my gun and, and the suspect. So anyway, I grab, and just like a hot knife through butter, he pulled away, and I'm like, this isn't good, and Dennis says, shoot him. So Dennis says, shoot him. And I think to myself, I don't want to shoot him, but I guess I got to shoot him because trying to take the knife away didn't work. So I reached back, picked up the gun, and your head spins around quicker than your body. And so when I spin my head back, they're still in that same posture of fighting over the knife. And so this guy's name is Edward Randolph, it turns out. His left arm is up, as his right arm is up, and his left side is exposed. And I just picked out a spot halfway between his xiphoid process and his left nipple. And when my right hand swung around, and I was just holding it one hand, boom, fired one shot. And um, within almost at the same time that I fire the shot, uh, the suspect says, oh, shit. And as he's saying that, Dennis is able to lock his elbows out. So in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, that shot worked. The elbows are locked out, so he can't murder Dennis anymore. And then I reached in with my left hand. We're able to control the knife. The, th- the, the two of us roll him over a little bit and pin him. And now there's four officers who were on the eastern perimeter. Uh, two guys I went to the academy with, a guy named uh, Neil May and a guy named Kirk Albanese. And they're training officers. And all four of them come running up the sidewalk. Now, what had happened is um, after I shot and we were able to control the knife i was able to pin it to the ground and then i either took my left my left knee or my left foot and i can't remember which and pinned his right hand to the grass um, but he's still holding the knife so these other four guys come up and now we've got six officers and finally we're able to get the knife away from him and then we're finally able to get him rolled over onto his back and we handcuff him and uh, a sergeant comes running over and uh, hang on a second. What happened next is there was another Cadillac that was on the uh, parked on the front yard of the house where the shooting happened. So the house where the shooting happened is directly across the street from the house that was the objective, the one where the, the gunman was. And um, so two of the officers went ahead and, and pulled the uh, suspect behind that Cadillac so that there was cover between the Cadillac and the objective. Uh, And then the other two officers, I can't remember what they did, but a sergeant comes running up and he says, hey, guys, sit on the sit down on the curb, calm down, whatever he said. And I shook my head and I said, no, there's a guy inside that house with a gun. So the four guys that ran up the sidewalk and the sergeant all thought that I had shot the guy from the house. The guy had somehow escaped the house, run across the street and I had shot him. And when I said that, the sergeant's like, oh, crap. And then we ran up onto a porch. Uh, of the house in front of which the shooting went down and then it just played out from there for the rest of the uh the evening what happened was the SWAT team was called out uh it turned out the suspect had fled at some point either before we got there or during the the chaos of, of the shooting and I want to say it was about four hours after the shooting that the SWAT team 
delivered some gas, went in, cleared it. There was nobody in there. And then the investigation uh, started in terms of a walkthrough and whatnot. We had already been interviewed back at the station house. We went and did the walkthrough and so on and so forth. Doctor, what did that, that's a hell of an experience, especially for a young rookie officer yeah. uh, that's working out of state in a location you're still trying to learn. How did you feel after that happened? I mean, as far as, and how did the department, as far as how they handled officer-involved shootings, as far as offering mental health services for for officers back then, what was that like? Well, there was, um, I don't want to impose my knowledge that I've developed in the last 41 and a half years from interviewing literally hundreds of officers and publications I've written. So let me, let me just think for a second. Um, essentially, there was a great deal of fear at the beginning because remember, um, I shoot this guy in front of a house that turns into a SWAT call-up. And I shot this guy because he was trying to murder my partner with a knife. And so what happens as SWAT is moving in, they are obviously relieving the patrol units and patrol units are witness officers and they're coming back to the station. And when we got the knife out of the suspect's hand, we weren't concerned about evidence. We were concerned about an active kill zone. We wanted to get the heck out of there. And um, so when we left the location, I didn't think where the knife was. And I just thought it was laying on the ground there. And so when the first units get relieved, they come by to check on me. And I say, hey, did someone recover the knife? They say, what knife? I said, the knife that the guy had that I shot. We don't know anything about a knife. I'm thinking, oh, crap. You know, this is before body cams. This is before anything. There's no documentation. You know, somebody could have snuck in and taken the knife. Maybe the knife fell through a storm sewer. You know, great. I'm really worried about this. After SWAT. Um, and, and, and we didn't, uh, let me backtrack when I was up on the porch, I couldn't see the knife because as I'm looking to the location where the shooting happened, it simply wasn't there. And so now I'm like, where'd that knife go? Now I'm back at the station asking guys about the knife and they're all saying, we don't know nothing about no knife, Dave. I'm like, well, this isn't good. And they're going to, you know, the district attorney is going to come after me. The civil rights activists are going to come after me. I'm in trouble. Turns out what, is hap- what had happened is when you have a curb, you've got the street, and then about four to six inches above it is where the sidewalk starts, and you've got this thing called a curb. Well, when Edward Randolph, as I said, is the guy's name, when the knife comes out of his hand and then in the ruckus to get him cuffed and everybody moving around, somehow the knife got moved, probably stepped on and kicked somehow, and it was leaning up against the curb. And so that's why I couldn't see it from the porch. And the reason none of the other officers could see it is because it was lying flat on the uh, the roadway, right where you know, right where the curb starts. And it wasn't discovered till after SWAT had cleared the location, and then the evidence guys were coming through to process it. Then they find the knife. So after SWAT had cleared it um, and whatnot, somebody said, "Hey, Dave, we found the knife." And I'm like, "Wow, that that really feels good," um, because then I knew at least that that piece of the, the puzzle was going to be uh, taken care of. So I was, I was worried about getting indicted. Um, Jesse Brewer, who was a, comma- uh, he was a commanding officer of South Bureau, so he would have been, I think, a deputy chief. He came in early on and said, 
you know, good job, something to that effect. We got your back, and that felt really good. Um, the shooting team comes out. There's a legendary guy in LAPD, a guy named uh, Charles Higby, who was lieutenant over their shooting team. Uh, LAPD shoots enough people every year and has for decades that they have a dedicated group of officers that do nothing but investigate OISs, and Chuck Higby was in charge there. And I remember him coming in and talking to me, giving me just a brief rundown about what was going to happen. And, and I was, like I said, I was worried. Um, now, this was after the knife had been found. And I said, uh, Lieutenant, was this a good shooting? He just looked at me and said, you save your partner's life. That's all I needed to hear in terms of the initial moment. So that initial fear about legal consequences um, was very, very keen on my mind. Um, the... So it took about 12 hours between the time of the shooting until the time that they uh, let me go when the investigation is done from my perspective. Uh, I was given a few days to, you know, go home and chill out. Uh, One thing I do remember, however, is my sergeant made me use 16 hours of comp time as opposed to giving me. That pissed me off. Um, That shouldn't have happened. That should have been mandatory. Yeah, you get two days off, Dave, but we're going to take it out of your overtime bank. That That didn't make me feel good. Um, imagine that a sergeant who doesn't think about the welfare of his or her charges. But at any rate, for those of you that don't know, that's it. That's a cynical remark uh, because sometimes <laughs> sergeants don't do what they're supposed to do. Anyhow, um, there wasn't mandatory mental health debrief at that point. Um, I know that the supervisory staff, the guys other than this one sergeant, um, had my back. I really appreciated that. Um, went out and had breakfast with a guy named Joe Ram, who was a supervisor. Um, on day watch that I had a great deal of respect for, and that was all positive. Um, as things moved forward, um, they put me on the desk for a little while. Once I came back after my two days of quote unquote vacation that I had to pay for and, um, did that for a little bit. And then they wheeled me back out into the district or into the division patrol. Um, People periodically checked on me to see how I'm doing, but basically it was, this is something that happens. I mentioned Doug Kershaw had killed a guy either seven or eight days before. So um, even though I was the last guy to kill anybody in 77th till I left and went to Pacific Division maybe 10 months later, um, officer-involved shootings were something that occurred, so it wasn't a big deal in the division. And so in one sense, it became very routinized, um, but it, I mean, it really had a huge impact on me. One of them, one of the big impacts was, wait a second, you came here to save lives and you took a life. How do you deal with that? So trying to make sense of that. And so for me, a lot of the aftermath was, was largely a solo journal so far as solo journey, excuse me, so far as the PD goes. My family was, was very supportive. I reached out to some pastors that I, that I knew, and they were all supportive. So I had a network of support, but from the PD's perspective, it was, um, they, they could have done a better job. So you mentioned the three knives in one, yeah. one deal. Yeah. We've had a theory of, of threes here. You know, bad things always happen in threes. Steve, you could probably. Yes, they do. Yeah. So it's interesting that you picked up on, there was three incidents with knives in that same day. Um, I know that we've had, we'll go months without a hostage rescue, and then you'll get two, and you're just waiting for that third one. Right. You know, it's 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 kind of interesting how that follows 
life. I don't know if it's just a coincidence and we're looking for it, but no. it seems like that's that's the way it goes with threes. Yeah, and I only in my in my career only ever dealt with one other uh, knife situation after that evening. So who the heck knows? I need. Let me ask a couple quick questions. Sure. Well, first, the disposition of your partner. Yeah, Dennis. What what had happened? I mentioned that I saw the knife go into Dennis. What happened was, if you think about it, if you drive a knife into a human body or strike a human body, it's probably not going to um, be right in the middle of the person's body. It's probably going to be somewhere off to a side a little bit, and the, other, and the person is going to be reacting. And so what happened was his body pivoted to his left, and so when the knife hit him and it pivoted, I didn't see the knife go into him. I saw the knife disappear from my view, but what it was was his right side of his body as his left side is pivoting to the back, his right side is pivoting to the front. And so I'm looking off to Dennis's right. So what I thought was a knife going into him was simply his body moving. Uh, Dennis was wearing soft body armor, 16 layers of Kevlar is my understanding. It went through 12 of the 16 layers of the Kevlar and it saved his life. If he had not been wearing soft body armor, Dennis would be dead. There's no doubt in anybody's mind. It didn't strike Dennis in the chest per se. It hit right underneath maybe a quarter of an inch and half an inch below the right side of his rib or the, one of the two sides of his rib cage. And so if he had not been wearing soft body armor, this was a big-ass butcher's knife. That's a technical term. You know, eight-inch blade, five, six-inch handle, I couldn't tell you. It would have gone into the hilt, and he would have died. So he survived that initial blow. And it's interesting because I've I've talked with Dennis afterwards, and he said, I thought I was dead. He thought he had been stabbed and he'd been run through. So at any rate, um, the initial one, um, the only injury he suffered was a – major league fastball bruise right you know if you get you know nolan ryan hit you with a hundred mile an hour fastball you're gonna have a nice bruise who had one of those on his lower abdomen right where the rib cage starts and then the other thing and divine providence i couldn't tell you what not a scratch on his arms i do not know dennis does not know it's miraculous that his arms and hands were not cut to ribbons so he, he, he did just fine physically. Yeah. One other thing, how long is, was at the time L.A.'s police academy? It was a uh, six-month academy. Okay. But what happened was um, ours got cut back to four months, 16 weeks, which was the minimum for post-certification, police officer standard and training certification. Um, and the reason it got cut back is there's something called the Bob's Big Boy Massacre that occurred in the winter of 1981 where some gangbangers came out of South Central, went over to a restaurant called Bob's Big Boy at like 1.55 in the morning. They closed it too. They hustled the people into a meat locker and shotgunned them to death. And this became a big thing in the news, and they demanded, you know, the public was out was uh, outraged and had a huge outcry, we need more cops, we need more cops. So they shortened our academy from six months to four months. And I haven't thought a whole lot about it over the years, but every now and then I've wondered if it would have been a six-month academy, would I have still been wheeled out? I know I would have gone to South to uh, 77th Street, but would I have been working PM Watch with Dennis Azevedo on yeah. July 31st, 1981? Who knows? Anything in the academy train you for that incident? They, they did talk about um, knives. We actually had a practical 
exercise with someone with a knife. They talked about trying to keep distance, so on and so forth. Um, the shooting course was pretty darn sound. Uh, the issue of actually making the decision to shoot, we had a class on deadly force. And I mentioned that uh, one of the things they talked about is we won't criticize you if you don't use deadly force. So that was a piece of it. And the guy who actually said that, his name was, uh, he was Commander Wyndham, who came down, I think he was the chief in Fort Worth at some point in the 1980s, early 90s. But at any rate, um, then we had a guy named Elmer Pellegrino, um, who was former SWAT, former officer-involved shooting investigation team. And he talked about more specific things. And one of the things was you shoot to stop the threat. That's the purpose of using deadly force. And once the threat is passed, you stop. And so in my mind, going back to your question of did it prepare me, I fire a shot to take the knife from being a deadly threat to Dennis. And so in my mind, as soon as he locks his elbows out, there's no longer a threat. Because if a knife is, I'm just going to say your arms are two and a half feet long, I don't know. If a knife is two and a half feet away from your throat and you've got a grip on it, it's no longer a deadly threat that requires using deadly force. And once we went ahead and I reached back in with one arm and, or one hand and was able to push the knife over uh, or, or push uh, Edward Randolph over with Dennis's assistance and we pinned the knife, it's like, that's it. Now, with that said, um, I believe that I would have had full authorization. And if I had to do it all over again, what I would have done instead of um, trying to take the knife away, um, we had revolvers back in the day. I just would have ran up and contact shot stuck it in his rib cage and pulled the trigger until I saw the, the knife come out of harm's way. And so I probably would have pumped three or four rounds into him if I had to do it all over again. But um, I'll give myself a little bit of uh, grace and say I was Absolutely. a dumb rookie. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and by the way, for those of you that um, are out on the streets now, um, you darn well better know what you're doing if you're thinking about contact rounds with semi-autos. With a revolver, you don't have to worry about it. You're going to get six rounds, and it's all going to be good. But with semi-autos, you can get that thing out of battery real quick with contact shots. So you need to be make sure you're trained on that, and you understand exactly what's going on if you think about doing that. And there, there is a time and a place for contact shots, and this would have been a perfect time and a perfect place for a contact shot. Now, that was 1981. Yep. So 23 years later, yeah. into the kill zone, a cop's eye view on deadly force comes out. Yep. Let's talk about it. What, what started you off on, on that journey? So what happens is I, uh, I leave Los Angeles in the um, winter of 83 and go to work for Redmond, Washington, a small PD outside of um, Seattle. Now everybody knows about it because that's where Bill Gates is from. But back then it was a, uh, a, a quiet suburb that had some rural areas. And... Uh, after about a year there, I said, you know what, I'm going to go back to, to grad school full time because I, I want to teach college and I want to write. I want to be a voice that talks about what really goes on in law enforcement because my uh, undergraduate experience and then reading other people's um, academic accounts of policing, it was night and day between what I knew from my experience and what I was hearing and reading. So I said, I'm going to go be a difference maker in this arena. And uh, so I go off to grad school. I study under a guy named Jim Fife at uh, American University. 
And Jim um, was a New York City police lieutenant when he retired, was 16 years on the job, um, got his Ph.D. at State University in New York, Albany, and his was the first uh, doctoral dissertation on the use of deadly force. And what he did is he looked at all shootings in NYPD from 71 to 75, and I won't get into the weeds on it, but at any rate, I said, if I'm going to do research on this, I'm going to study under the best guys. So off I went to D.C., so I'm in D.C., I'm studying under Jim, and uh, they say, hey, you know what? If you really want to do what you tell us you want to do, you want to go get a Ph.D., and you have to decide what discipline. So I decide on sociology. It just so happens University of Washington has one of the top five Ph.D. programs in the country uh, in sociology, so off I go back to Seattle after getting my uh, master's degree in justice from American University. So as I'm studying, I want to study post-traumatic stress disorder and how it relates to police officers, post-shooting trauma, whatever you want to call it. And my advisors say, that's wonderful, David, but that's pretty narrow. You might want to expand stuff. Plus, writing a dissertation on that is going to be a lot of work. And it just so happens I had access to a data set that Jim and I had put together uh, by doing some work with uh, the Metro-Dade Police Department down in Miami. And so my mentors convinced me to write my dissertation not about police reactions to shootings but about police arrest decision making and how different communities might have different how officers working in different sorts of communities might think differently about their job and then engage in different uh, arrest decision practices at any rate so i wrote my dissertation about that and then i published a bunch of stuff and i sort of took my eye off deadly force and then probably just maybe six or seven years into my first job, which, by the way, was at the University of Houston, my first academic appointment, I said, you know, nobody has really done anything about use of deadly force in terms of the officer's perspective. And so I said, let me see if I can get some money to uh, secure some funding to do some research that might be helpful on that point. And the reason that getting money... Um, is important is when you get money from the United States Department of Justice to conduct research, everything that is, all data that is collected under the aegis of uh, USDOJ funding is confidential. It has essentially the same protection as lawyer-client privilege, priest-penitent privilege, so on and so forth. There's actually a federal statute that says everything that is collected is immune from civil, administrative, and criminal process. So if, if you want to get cops to tell you the truth about a shooting and the truth about how it affected them, um, you darn well better be able to say what you tell me is not going to go past our what, us unless you agree to have yourself identified. And many officers who uh, were interviewed that f- for the study that eventually led to this book um, have said that it's okay to identify them. And some, some names that some of you are probably going to be familiar with and some of your um, audience is going to be familiar with uh, Sandy Wall from Houston PD he's in my book he's the busy cop a woman named Stacy Lim out in LA um, who was shot literally through the heart uh, by a 15 year old carjacker and then she she capped him and put him down uh, and then another one that uh, don't need to know his name but you can look him up if you want to he's the only police officer in the history of American law enforcement who's ever shot anybody who stole an army tank. Um, so there are certain cases that um, officers 
uh, have said, sure, go ahead and identify me. Or they say, yeah, my story is out there, so everyone's going to know it's me. Um, but at any rate, so I, so I got that federal funding, and then I just – there's something called snowball sampling where you start out with a small group of, of uh, research subjects, and then they say, yeah, that, I, I know some other officers you might want to talk to. And so I interviewed officers all around the country, 80 cops who'd been involved in shootings. And for this study, it was you had to strike somebody with gunfire as opposed to merely firing your weapon because I was interested in both what goes on during the event and then how it affects afterwards. And so what I did was I, uh, this is the one time you're allowed to plagiarize in the academic world. Um, and that is you steal research instruments that other people have used. And a guy named John Henry Campbell had done a study with a bunch of FBI agents where he interviewed them about various aspects of shootings. And so I took his instrument, altered it a little bit, built it up a little bit, chopped off some of it and uh, got my federal funding and then started interviewing officers and this would have been in the late 90s i think i got the funding in 97 and so then i would have probably started interviewing in 98 99 uh, interviewed officers like i said all over the country and um wrote my report to nij and then uh used the so let me backtrack the officers would fill out an instrument where they would answer questions about everything from their background to the uh, event, what happened, and then some specific questions about things such as auditory occlusion, time speeding up, um, so on and so forth. Some stuff we'll get into in a little bit here. But anyway, so they filled that out. And then after they had filled that out and given it back to me and I looked at it, we sat down for an audio tape interviews, for audio tape interviews, which were later transcribed. And so I have these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of transcribed interviews with officers and the way that I built the interviews was number one tell me about who you were before you were a cop and tell me why you became a cop there's a couple of reasons for this number one it's I'm interested in it I want to get to know these people number two what that does is that builds a little bit of rapport between the interviewer and the interviewee and then number three, what it does is it gets the officer starting to think about his or her experiences vis-a-vis -vis deadly force. So who were you before you came on the job? What did you think about uh, officer-involved shootings? And then number two, tell me about um, your training about deadly force in the academy, field training, so on and so forth. So Steve had asked me the question about did the LAPD Academy prepare you for the shooting. I didn't ask that question, but it's akin to what Steve asked me. I want to know what your training was regarding deadly force. Then the third thing that I asked the officers about before we went into their shootings was what I think is the great untold story of American law enforcement, and that is situations where officers have 100%, no doubt about it, lawful warrant to shoot somebody, but they don't. Officers who have been on the job, people who've been around law enforcement know that the vast majority of times that officers can shoot by the four corners of the law, they hold fire. And so I asked them about circumstances where they could have shot but didn't. And they would flesh out at least some of those stories. Then we'd move on to the event or events because some of these officers had been involved in multiple shootings. Um, and then we would move on and talk about the aftermath, how it affected them. And I mentioned part of the questionnaire asked about 
what went on during the shooting in terms of perceptual anomalies and whatnot. I also asked these officers about how they reacted in the wake of it. In the first 24 hours, within the first week, then within three months, and then long term. And so I had this quantitative data about sleeplessness, um, agitation, whatever the case might be. So that would be the fifth thing I would ask them about. And isn't it a miracle? There's five chapters to the book. Who these guys and gals were before they came on the job, what they thought about shootings, their training regarding shootings, situations where they could have shot but didn't, then the shootings themselves, and then the aftermath. And so um, a guy named uh, Ronald Weiner at American University, the first uh, graduate uh, place I attended, he had suggested this model of a five-phase interview, and it just so happens that when I was fortunate enough to do these interviews 12 years after Ron and I talked about it, that I was able to use that to great effect. I want to get into questions about the book here. Um, you mentioned earlier that you were worried about the ramifications of your shooting yep. more than processing the shooting. Yep. Is that common? Um, yeah. I, I don't have a number that I can pull out right now, but um, fear of administrative or legal negative repercussions was quite prominent among officers, um, particularly in the immediate wake of the shooting, because most officers have not been in a shooting before, and therefore they're unsure, even if they've been around before. And um, so for, for most officers, there is some, at least the officers I interviewed, there is some consternation. There is some concern about that. As time passes, however, as the investigation moves forward, as officers are no-billed here in Texas, as prosecutors uh, issue decline letters, as shooting review boards come back, quote-unquote, in policy, that stuff starts to dissipate. And also before that, um, generally, not, not everywhere, but generally, when an officer is involved in a shooting, it's pretty apparent pretty quickly whether it's going to be, quote, end quote, a good shooting or a bad shooting. And that's police parlance for listeners who aren't familiar with it. Not that it's a good thing that the officer shot, but that it's lawful and it's within the four corners of the agency policy. And so, for example, let's say Steve and I, uh, we'll say Steve Bishop, because I know that uh, Steve Claggett has shot some people. Steve hasn't shot anybody, I don't believe. Steve Bishop. Not yet. Yeah, there you go. So at any rate, Steve and I are out on patrol. We've never been involved in a shooting before, but Steve Claggett is our supervisor, and he's been involved in some shootings. And be um, a damn good supervisor. There you go. You missed your calling there. At any rate, really. so we, we get involved in a shooting of a robbery suspect um, who shot the victim and is running down the street with a gun in his hand, he spins on Steve and I when we tell him to stop and fires around at us, and Steve and I both put rounds in him, and he's down. We're, we're, we're young officers. We don't know. We're worried. But Sergeant Claggett shows up, and he's taking care of business, and we know that he's been involved in some shootings and that he's been around the block a couple of times. And he says, you know, guys, we have to do a thorough investigation, obviously, but on its face, this looks like a, you know, as as good as you can get in terms of within the four corners of law and policy. You know, someone committed an armed robbery, shot somebody, and then shot at you. You probably don't have to worry about it. So those sorts of things become pretty evident pretty soon, most of the time. 
unfortunately, there's some cases where, let's just say, a homicide supervisor who's coming out to run an investigation uh, doesn't understand the nuances of what his or her job is and puts the fear of God into an officer in the wake of a shooting. You could have a situation where the press is blowing up the shooting, saying it's the worst thing since sliced bread because they don't know, um, bad sliced bread, by the way, because they don't know um, much about policing. So sometimes officers do have quite a bit of consternation uh, in the wake of things, but generally over time it becomes apparent that it's going to be okay. Now, for those officers that made a poor decision, for those officers that fired when they shouldn't have fired or fired past the point where the use of deadly force was reasonable, then there's going to be some some concerns. And that's why we have to have thorough investigations. That's why we have to have thorough reviews of things. But yeah, the officers that I interviewed, a, a non-trivial number of them were, were concerned, at least for a while, about um, things. On getting into the mental health issue of that, yeah. you'd never have the opportunity to actually process what you went through and what just happened because you're so worried about the administrative effects or or losing your freedom for something you did. And even I could see it maybe in the eighties and nineties and even the early two thousands where if someone came up and said, Hey, you did a good job. Everything's going to be mm-hmm. fine. In today's political climate, you could have done everything right. Everybody on your entire chain of command says everything is good. Yeah. And then the DA or somebody else decides that you didn't, or like you said, the media could turn on you real quick on sure. these situations. So I think that's a, a big part of, once somebody is cleared by the grand jury or is cleared by their department, we need to make a concerted effort now to say, Hey, let's talk about what actually happened. Mm -hmm. Now let's, let's dive into your mental state and where you're at. Well, my argument is that should happen well before that. And that should be done by a separate entity, whether it is a peer support entity, whether it's a psychological professional, mental health professional, psychiatrist, a psychologist, um, that should be something that happens early on. And that would um, be ideal, but I don't know that everybody's capable of, of channeling both at the same time. The I can't argue that there's going to be officers that are not going to be particularly helped by um, having that intervention early on, but it can't hurt them. True. Number one. And number two, for those officers that can be helped, it's probably going to be a very good thing. Um, you know, I mentioned the uh, NIJ funding provided essentially confidentiality. Um, if you are talking to a mental, if an officer gets involved in the shooting and is talking to a licensed mental health professional, I believe it occurs all around the country, that is privileged information. And that's a good thing that the officer can go ahead and uh, chat with someone. Now, that said, an agency has to make sure that they have a switched on mental health group as opposed to a bunch of, uh, let's just say, um, less than stellar. And there's some stories in Kill Zone about some interactions with mental health professionals that are less than, uh, less than wonderful because police departments oftentimes don't spend the time, the effort, the energy, the money in making sure that they have a really good mental health system. Um, other other agencies um, do a fantastic job, have a staff psychologist that's really switched on or a whole group of psychologists that really know their business. And uh, that's something that 
um, needs to change. It needs to be all law enforcement officers have access to really good uh, mental health resources. And like I say, um, should be made available at least early on. Now, some officers don't like that. They don't want to talk to an MHP. Right. That's fine, but it should be available to them. And I don't have a problem with having a mandatory session with a mental health professional as long as it's a, a switched-on, squared-away mental health professional who has a good reputation. Then even those officers that don't want to talk will at least begrudgingly go ahead and have that, that first chat and open up that channel. And you never know. Um, a name that I know has been bandied about here before is Ron McCarthy. And Ron was the assistant unit commander of LAPD SWAT uh, for about a decade and a half. And Ron and I became good friends over the years. And uh, we have talked, and there are LAPD SWAT cops who you would not think in a million years would have, a, have an issue with taking a life. And he said some of these guys just, it, 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 it ruined them. It devastated them. Uh, ruined is too strong a word. It, uh, it was really hard for them. And I've heard officers from SWAT teams in other places around the country. Um, and, in fact, one's in my book. Uh, real good guy. Um, his second shooting, um, he said, I can't do this anymore. And off he goes. Nothing wrong with that. Not meaning he weak. It's just, I don't like shooting people. And if I stay in this assignment, I'm probably going to get involved in more shootings. I'll leave it up to someone else. So at any rate, we, we never know who is going to be affected by things. And therefore, that should be available to all officers all across the country. Basically, we're all humans. Yep, and absolutely. You can you can train as much as you want to. You can train mindset. You can train yep. physical. But at the end of the day, you're a human. You're an individual, and everybody's going to handle it a little bit differently. Yeah. And there's there's no right or wrong to that. Yeah. It's it's just what Joe calls the way it is. Yeah. Sometimes I, that's the way it is. You're right. There's no right or wrong, but there is a good and there's a bad. And the good is a healthy resolution of whatever conflict, if you have any conflict. Bad is a an awful resolution because I've, I've talked with multiple officers who literally were an inch away from taking their own life after having shot somebody. Right. So, yeah, any rate. Little known, unknown fact. Yeah. You might probably know it, but Ron McCarthy's son. Yeah. Big John McCarthy yeah. was the UFC, was the UFC uh, first referee right. and, and UFC one through whatever. Um, big boy was a LAPD defense, ta- defensive tactics instructor, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, Ron was actually one of the plank owners or plank members of, of LAPD SWAT. He was on, on the ground there. Um, he was key in developing not only a lot of their SOPs and protocols, but I'm sure you, you got into it in the book, which right. I enjoyed a lot. But he got into basically priority of life right. principles that we'll talk about here in a bit. A um, little bit different for patrol guys than it is for SWAT guys, but still extremely useful when it's adhered to yeah no uh ron mccarthy is um properly a a legend in the the realms that are aware of of his work because it's so broad he uh as as we just mentioned he he worked fairly pd swat was right there when it was starting and uh helped build it up and uh, was there at the sla shootout and so on and so forth but Ron has always had, at least as long as I've known him, this love for line officers, even though he works SWAT. 
And for those of you that have had the pleasure of taking any of his courses over the years, he always talks about the importance when you're in a SWAT assignment of making sure that you don't steal the limelight from the hard work, from the patrol officers or the detectives who did the hard work that brought the case to the point where SWAT was called up. So, no, I, I love Ron. <clears throat> Steve, you, your background, everybody knows that your background in SWAT, right? What did you take from this book as far as leadership standpoints you and i've ta- you and i've talked offline about this book i, I the one thing I'm, I'm backtracking here a little bit mm-hmm. just to compliment dave uh, i thought it was a great book i love war stories and it's full of interesting and unique war stories that were it's perspectives too uh, absolutely the one thing that i enjoyed most was i but reading the book i go you know what dave has been on the sharp end so it gives him a unique perspective i only know of maybe one other guy out there that talks about killing and and has that sharp end experience that's dave grossman colonel dave grossman um, wrote on killing and stop teaching our kids to kill so i I think dave both daves share that unique perspective and i I think that's invaluable um i the the one thing that and i think it it applies to swat teams and to patrol guys the, the secret for success is basically picking the right people whether you're hiring or picking to go into a team training them and then in my opinion most importantly is leading them and without effective leadership i I think it it's you're destined to fail um and just even the little perspective dave was talking about how um you know if you get a supervisor come up and just step all over you after you've been involved in a a, a, uh, office officer involved shooting and you're not real sure how how things are going to go and that will leave an indelible damage on them um, in, in one of the shootings I was in, I had a, a lieutenant tell me that uh, he didn't think I was showing the appropriate amount of remorse. And I said, I'm not real sure you can gauge how I've processed things. So I prefer, you know, keep that to yourself. And uh, I'm not going to tell you who it was, but it, that, that hit me the wrong way. Yeah, real, real quick, um, moving back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago regarding officers processing the after effects and what Steve just said about supervisors. One of the things I talk about when I do training or when I'm trying to educate train cops or trying to educate laymen about things, if you're the supervisor or you're the lieutenant or you're the captain or the major or the assistant chief or the chief or whatever, you were involved in the process of hiring this person, of training this person, of putting a gun in their hand and telling them when they are allowed to use this. And so the default assumption should be that this officer did what he or she was trained to do, was hired to do, was given a gun to do. If it turns out that the investigation discloses that that is incorrect, so be it. Then you discipline, you fire, indictments could be coming forth, so on and so forth. But your working assumption as a leader should be, my guy or my gal did well. My job is to take care of my person. It's somebody else's job to do the investigation. My shooting team, the you know, for a smaller police department, the county police, the state police, if the officer works for a, 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 a jurisdiction that has a multi-jurisdictional shooting team, they have these in Wisconsin, they have them in Washington State, so on and so forth. That's up to them. You take care of your person. You, you lose nothing 
by doing the right thing by supporting your line officer when he or she pulls the trigger. Now, if you're the chief and you roll up and it's obviously a stinker, fair enough. Um, you know, let's say the uh, the chief in uh, I think it's North Charleston, South Carolina, where the officer they've got the video of him shooting this guy as he's running away, Walter Scott. If you're aware of that as the chief and you roll up and you've already seen that video, I understand that uh, you're not going to be, hey, guy, you know, we're here to support you because you've got prima facie evidence a crime has been committed. But save something like that. Support your officer. If it shakes out bad for the officer, so be it. Your job then as a supervisor, as a manager, as a chief is to do the right thing by upholding what your shooting policy is and disciplining, firing, whatever the case might be. But don't have that your default assumption. The story about you're not showing proper remorse, therefore something is wrong, that's just bunk, period, paragraph, end of story. It's just poor leadership, and it can also it could send that individual into a spiral. I mean, Steve, Clay, Steve was obviously fine, but it affected him at the time, I'm sure. But imagine if that same phrase was given to someone else yeah well and, and i need to make this clear it wasn't a lieutenant in my chain of command the captain in my chain of command mona neal straighten that away post haste so yeah she she i've talked about her before she yes. she's a stud yeah i but, want her on here actually so good luck i'd like to be sitting in the in the gallery watching you'll be invited back you're always invited back. not for this mic. i want to yeah. watch oh you want to watch anyway, okay no, all good stuff doctor uh you can call me dave Dr. Day, doctor. Whatever Dave. you want. Hey. I, 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 I'm not Jill Biden. Okay. So, you know. <laughs> oh, Clearly. See? I like Jeez. this. I like where we're going here. <laughs> She's not on the list uh, to come okay, on, but uh, maybe one day. We, wanted, we do want to get you uh, on Joe Rogan, too, because I listen to Rogan all the time, and I would like to hear you on, on that uh, program as well. Okay. Good deal. I want to get into uh, the psychological and physical effects during a shooting. Sure. Uh, can you talk about those? Because there's a lot of – we've had on a lot of mental health professionals on this uh, podcast, and they go over it, but we haven't really done a deep dive into what officers should physically expect after they go through one of these uh, OISs. Well, there's two things. Number one, you shouldn't expect anything. What you should expect is – Within the range of what human experience is, and I, and I like the notion that was raised earlier, we're human beings. What we know, what the, the folks that are the psychologists who've done research on this know, is that human beings are subject to having altered sensory perceptions during the moments of any sort of what we now call traumatic or maybe critical incidents. And to my knowledge, the first um, published research on this came 120, 25 years ago or so uh, from a guy who did a study of people who had survived falling off of mountains in Switzerland. And they reported the people that fell down and survived. Of course, we don't know what the people who didn't survive experienced, but the survivors reported things that were unusual, time slowing down, so on and so forth. At any rate, we've got this this body of information about people in all sorts of things, crime victims, uh, men and women in combat. And I was one of the, um, the first 
to, I wasn't the first, I mentioned John Henry Campbell, there were some other ones, but I was one of the first to do a national-based study outside of at least the FBI on uh, what officers experienced during shootings and then afterwards. So um, when people say an officer should expect this, that bothers me. And the reason it bothers me is I've attended training where I was told, if you get involved in a shooting, this is going to happen. If you get involved in the shooting afterwards, you're going to feel these things. No, that I didn't feel that, so maybe there's something wrong with me. And in fact, let's shift first to the issue of post-shooting reactions. I mentioned I've got this, this instrument that the officers fill out that ask them about, did you experience sleeplessness? Did you experience a sense of guilt? Did you experience all these different things? And more than one officer after they completed the thing, at some point during the interview, would say, is there something wrong with me? I said, what do you mean is there something wrong with me? Well, I didn't experience any of these things, and I was told I was going to experience all these things, and I didn't. I said, no, there's nothing wrong with you. You're just one of the folks that it's all good for you and good on you. But at any rate, we shouldn't tell officers that they are going to experience anything. We should tell them what the range is. And the range is everything from literal suicidal ideation, and you got to watch for that. And the mental health folks need to be checking on that up to and including extreme exhilaration. And if you think about it, why shouldn't someone feel exhilarated because they survived a situation where they could have died? And one officer in particular who's involved in a just an absolute crazy shootout with some uh, robbery suspects where the house gets on fire they're taking rounds from inside. They're putting all sorts of stuff on the inside, uh, from the outside into the inside. But at any rate, um, he was one or two in the stick, and the person inside is shooting out at the door where he is with, it turns out, later an AK-47. And his head is about three inches away from where AK-47 rounds are flying and wood splinters are flying in front of his eyes. He survived that, and he was elated. So for him, the focus of the event was survive. He's, he's alive, and he got to go back to his wife and his kids, as opposed to thinking about the fact that somebody died as a result of gunfire from him and his peers. So at any rate, the after effects, let's talk about that for a minute, everything from elation to, as I said, suicidal ideation. Some officers have problems sleeping. Some officers um, um, have a great deal of fear, a great deal of apprehension about maybe the suspect or the suspect's uh, buddies are going to come get them, death threats, all those sorts of things. So you can have a variety of reactions after. Moving back to during the moments, um, we basically can think about two things. One is perceptual anomalies, and then the other one is peritraumatic dissociative reactions. I don't want to get too deep into the weeds, and the reason I want to make a distinction is that perceptual anomalies are things such as time speeding up, time slowing down, um, auditory attenuation where you don't. So let's go back to my shooting, and I can remember this like it was yesterday. I pulled the trigger, and it sounded like one of those old cap guns you played with when you were a kid where you're, you know, for those of you that don't know, when, you, when I was a kid, had something called a cap gun. And you could go to the store, and you'd get it, and it would be on a roll, and you pull the trigger on this thing, and every time your little hammer on your little handgun hits it, it goes pop about that loud. And it's fun, and you all play. 
And so I pulled the trigger and it sounded just like that. And I remember thinking between the time I pulled the trigger and the time I reached in to grab the knife, that was odd. So some people have made the argument that what officers experience in the moment is everything regular. It's only retrospectively when they're remembering it that these perceptual anomalies come up. We can't prove it because it's unknowable. It's like a black box. We, we can't know for sure. But I can tell you from personal experience, that is what I experienced at that moment was auditory attenuation. The other thing is, uh, the other major thing is time can either speed up or slow down. And these are things that are pretty remarkable and officers do need to know about it so that if they are involved in a shooting, they don't have a slip up. They don't get overwhelmed by the event of how they're experiencing it. So for example, um, sometimes officers will report seeing their bullets flying down range and striking a suspect. And at first you say that can't happen because the human eye can't perceive but, you know, one case in, in, in Killzone, one case in my book, this officer fires five rounds and he sees four of them strike the suspect in the head, actually in the face. The fifth one he doesn't see. The reason the fifth one he doesn't see is because the fifth one hit the guy in the neck and his vision was so tunneled in that literally all he saw was the suspect's face. And so there's an example of... In the moment, this officer did not freak out because his visual, his visual field was so attenuated, and he didn't freak out as he's watching the bullet strike and watching flesh fly and eye material fly, so on and so forth. But we need to let officers know about this so that if things are going slow, they don't freak out. If their own motion is being perceived as slow and the suspect's motion is being perceived as fast, that can be terrifying. Because you're trying to get your gun up, for example, and the suspect is already putting rounds on you. And you can have a crisis there. And if you have that crisis and go, I've lost the gunfight, you're in trouble. So teach the officers about time slowing down, time speeding up. Teach the officers that if you don't hear your gunshots, that's okay. But also teach them you might not hear the suspect's gunshots. So if you see muzzle flash, but you don't hear gunfire... Don't say, oh, he's not shooting at me necessarily, right? Be able to take all that information from your training, put it in the moment so that you can interpret what your perceptions are. And one thing on that point that's vital, um, I know this is in the notes. I don't know if we're going to get to it. But when you think about how a shooting occurs, a shooting occurs when an officer decides to pull the trigger. It's not a shooting up to that point, right? Three things have to happen before the trigger is pulled. Number one, the officer has to perceive something. Number two, they have to define it as a threat. Number three, they have to decide on a plan to address the threat. They could run away. They could dive to the ground, whatever the case might be. And then they have to implement that plan by pulling the trigger. Those same four things happen in everything that we do, right? You perceive it, you define it, you decide on what you're going to do, and then you do it. Now, that's the, the, the analytical frame of what goes on. And what we don't want is we don't want officers to say, I'm perceiving something wrong, therefore, 
when I say wrong, perceiving something in a way that is not my normal processing. Therefore, I'm not under threat. Therefore, my plan is to do X when, in fact, you are under threat. At any rate, this, this is a little bit um, deep in the weeds, but it's the sort of thing that needs to be incorporated into training. Um, but anyway, so those are the three major types of distortions that we typically think about. We think about sound, we think about vision, and we think about time. Um, and we'll just leave it at that. So talk more about the factors to consider in a gunfight. You, you kind of broke down Captain Hillman's stuff already a little bit, but get, get more into that for us. Help me understand, because I'm not, I'm not clear on what you... What you, that's, uh, you discussed the... Uh, I think that's mine. The OODA loop song. Yeah, that's hey, mine. And that's, that, what he, that's basically what you were talking about, Dave, was the yeah. OODA loop uh, developed by Boyd, Boyd? Colonel Boyd. Colonel Boyd, yeah. Air Force pilot, on, on trying to sharp or shorten the perception of, of a firefight in the sky and how they can engage faster. And basically, it's, it goes over the same points that Dave was bringing up. It's, yeah. You've got you got to observe it. You got to orient yourself to that. Decide and then act. Um, basically, Mike Hillman. I don't know if you knew him in L.A. or not. I know Mike pretty well. Yeah, yeah. good guy. Just, his phone number is in my cell phone. And extremely intense. Great one, guy. One of the most intense guys I've ever been around. That you know? means a lot. I was exhausted coming yeah. from the source here. Stop it. But anyway, no, he did, he did a, a study, and I thought it was phenomenal. Um, perceive a threat it takes you about 0.1 second in in the studies that he did um your brain is going to lag behind what's going on that's another 0.1 second then your reaction time is 0.8 or 0.4 to 0.8 seconds so basically you're looking anywhere from 0.6 seconds to a second or more to react to a, a threat and that's under the best of conditions now obviously if if the you don't handle stress well or haven't been trained very well it's going to be more so you're basically your lag time to respond to a threat is going to be significant if you're not prepared for it, not trained for it. I think the key there about what Steve's talking about is that you're in a reactive mode and the police need to be in a reactive mode because the police in a democratic society that values the lives of its citizens, the police can't willy nilly just wander in and shoot people. Now, with that said, there are times and places where the police are going to be very aggressive, let's say a hostage rescue, let's say a sniper-initiated um, hostage rescue, let's say a sniper is going to take a shot to take the life of, well, not to take the life of, but it's going to end in the taking the life of the suspect, but to save a hostage. Um, there are some times when it is very, very different than this typical thing that we're talking about in terms of a sudden threat that pops up. But at any rate, um, when we think about this, this type of stuff, it's really important to remember, going back to uh, what was said earlier, human beings. And if we want to understand what's going on and we want to prepare officers for this stuff, in a reactive mode, it's going to take a little while. And that's another thing that officers need to be trained on. If you get beaten to the draw, that's life. That gun is already in your face. You do not surrender. You do what you need to do to overcome that threat, whatever it might be, because you are in a reactive mode, and it's going to take some time. Um, and so you just have to keep pressing on. Another thing, um, and this goes back to Steve's question about what happened to Dennis. Um, I saw a knife go into Dennis's chest, but it didn't. It simply didn't. That doesn't mean that the threat wasn't there. The threat was there. He should have been dead, but the Kevlar saved his life. So... 
you have a definition of the situation that's built based upon your perception. And if you define this as I've already lost this gunfight, you are in a bad place. So part of this then becomes mindset, always persevere, always keep going. And Stacy Lim, uh, whose story is in my book, um, is a phenomenal example of that. She knew she was badly damaged, but she knew that she needed to not let this person get away, not let this person double back on her and kill her. And so that notion of staying in the fight when you might believe you're at a disadvantage, that's okay. Because if you give up, you're done. If you don't give up, you might just well persevere and you might just prevail. So. Good point. <laughs> a lot to lot to take in right there. I'm going to have to go back and listen to that again. Steve, you got any other notes you want to talk about over there? I do, shockingly. Um, probably the most unique perspective I ever heard about officer-involved shootings was, came from one of my first trainers I had on the street. The guy was genius, and I didn't even know it. Um, he said, you don't make the decision to shoot people. They make the decision. He goes, it's up to you to draw that line in the sand on when you will pull the trigger. And I thought that was genius. And he was drunk when he said it. <laughs> but we weren't on duty, so it was okay. A lot of genius comes out at that point. It does. It does. And I get better looking when I drink, just so you know. But anyway, the, uh, I, 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 that's when I started slowly drawing lines. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I realized, too, that, that not everybody has the same line. Yeah. That, um, well, perfect example is when you've got five guys observing the same thing. And only two guys shoot. Yep. Can you explain that or, or touch on that? Yeah, um, the, 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 that, that's a lot. And let me see if I can unpack some of that. Um, let's go with the five people on the scene and two shoot and three don't. There could be a simple explanation, which is three people didn't see whatever it was that the other two saw that was the threat. So there's five of us in this room right now. And if someone were to walk around that corner and present a firearm, um, these guys, these two guys who are to my left might not see it, but all three of us might see it. And so I'm not going to shoot because I've got bodies in the way. You two are going to shoot because you've got a free line of fire. It could be something as simple as who perceives what. could be something as simple as who, who has a clear shot. Then the other thing could be, as, as, as what I think you're getting to, is I don't like the term line in the sand because I use that in another context that I'll get to in a moment. But... Um, Different officers have what I call personal shooting policies. And my personal shooting policy is going to be different than yours, potentially, and different from Steve Bishop's, potentially. And what I mean by a personal shooting policy is within the framework of law and policy that permits us to shoot fleeing felons under a very narrow band, according to Tennessee versus Garner, and shooting in defense of life, we all know about that stuff, but what you perceive as a threat to life might not be what I perceive as a threat to life. So one of the things that I've talked about over the years is in addition to my shooting, I had, depending on how you want to count, between six and 10 other situations in my brief police career where I clearly could have shot people. If there was video of it, anyone looked at it, yep, Dave could have shot this guy. At any rate, um, I didn't. So one of them I'll just talk about real briefly is um, I'm working with a guy named Steve Canarium. Um, We're working Hollywood Division. It's 1 o'clock in the morning. 
call comes out of a robbery just occurred at a certain location. We get there, and there's a guy standing in a phone booth. For those of you that are young, there's actually things called phone booths. You might have to watch an old TV show to see what I'm talking about. Anyway, guy standing in the phone booth waving to us. And so Steve's driving. I'm the passenger officer. I'm working in Hollywood with Steve. I step out. I take two steps. And all of a sudden, I realize he's got a six-inch um, 38 caliber revolver underneath his left armpit as he's waving to me with his right arm. So I draw down on him and I start screaming, you know, put your hands up, put your hands up. And he's looking at me and he's got a confused look on his face and he starts reaching for the gun. And I'm screaming at him, don't touch the gun, don't touch the gun. In that moment, I have a line in the sand for that particular case. And this is why I like to use the term line in the sand for a given situation. My line in the sand is if he touches the gun, I'm going to shoot him. His hand is going. His hand is now about an inch away. He is starting to close his thumb and his forefinger around the grip and his other three fingers around the grip of the gun. I don't shoot. All of a sudden, it's just like a light bulb goes on in his eyes. He takes his right hand away, puts his hands up. The gun falls down. Turns out Steve Canarium had the exact same line in the sand at that moment. We both independently decided not to shoot unless he grabbed the, 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 the pistol grip. I guarantee you that if we would have shot as he started to reach and he is now, I'm going to say, six inches away, no question asked. That's a good shooting. We're screaming at him, don't touch the gun, don't touch the gun. He is moving towards that gun, and he's about to grip it. So in that moment, our line in the sand was at that particular case. I had a personal shooting policy that said, I'm not going to shoot anybody unless I absolutely have to. And for me, in that moment, absolutely have to is if he would have grabbed the gun. In another situation, I might have shot the guy as he's reaching for the gun. Because all we knew there was, here's a guy on the scene of a robbery just occurred. Is he a victim? Is he a robber? Is he a witness? I don't know who he is. Let's say we know that this guy is a murder suspect. And now I've got a murder suspect reaching for a gun. I'm probably going to shoot a whole lot before he touches that gun because I know all sorts of things about the accuracy of gunfire, police gunfire, the ability of people to survive police gunfire, so on and so forth. And so if I've got a murder suspect reaching for a gun, I'm probably going to put a bunch of rounds into him as soon as he starts reaching for that gun. So the first thing is that notion of the personal shooting policy. So for me, mine is I'm only going to shoot if I absolutely have to. Um, Steve Canarium's was my had essentially the same but let's say his was if I if I see someone reaching for a gun I'm going to shoot him well if the circumstances is such that a person is reaching for a gun and it meets all the other criteria Steve could have shot and I didn't and it would have both been the right decision under our frame of reference so it goes back to humans being humans and we're all individuals and, and it's it's interesting. The, the book is, is kind of a, a perspective of, of how officers see things, but it's all individual officers. You know, you, yep. there is no one size fits all for any of this right. stuff. And, and that's what I think that's where we struggle because we want a an answer of this is how we're going to treat each officer after right. a, an incident you when, know, it, when there isn't a one size fits all. Yeah. And this goes back to one of the things I said earlier on about the great untold story of American law enforcement, about how many times officers have legal warrant to shoot and they don't. Most of the time, all officers on scene make the same decision not to shoot. 
But sometimes, and this goes back to Steve's example, sometimes a couple of officers or one officer decides to shoot. Now, sometimes that was the wrong decision, and we have to admit that. And sometimes it was the absolute right decision, and the other officers also made the right decision. And then the third thing is the two officers made the right decision. The other three officers should have also fired. I don't want to get too deep into the weeds about designated cover officers, designated shooters, but there's times and places where everybody's gun needs to be in the gunfight. And so if all five of us should have shot and only the two Steves did, then bad on us and good on them. So we have to understand that you can have shooting that's bad shooting, shooting where only some officers shoot and everybody on scene made the right decision, shooting where some officers shot and all officers should have shot at any rate. When I was training, before I retired from my second job, was training SWAT teams, and I would always, always ask them questions. Um, you'd run a scenario, see if which guys did what, you know, how they processed it. Um, you give them different scenarios. You know, you got a guy with the gun on a table, wingspan type thing. Would you shoot? Some guys would, some some guys wouldn't. And there's different scenarios with that where a guy's got the gun in hand but not pointed at you. A guy's got the gun that's pointed at you. Um, the guy shoots around at you and then there was actually guys that said i would not shoot unless i was hit wow and it was generally and of course you got to ask them you got to ask them you know a what's your life's experiences because that that plays a lot into what decisions you make under stress um and and usually it was your younger officers and we're talking swat teams now Mm -hmm. or tactical teams they're younger officers, not a lot of training, not a lot of experiences that had no reality-based training, which is, I think, one of the things that Dallas does well at is, is the reality-based training where you kind of get that answer to the test before you get, before you get tested. So um, it just I was surprised to see that, that yeah. wide array of possibilities. Yeah, and that goes back to what I was talking about, about a quote-unquote personal shooting policy. As long as it's within the four corners of law and your department policy – Um, you can narrow that. You can have a far more narrow personal shooting policy than the law permits and that your policy permits. The problem is that if your shooting personal shooting policy is so restrictive that it endangers your life, the life of your partners or innocent citizens, then it's no good. Right. And let me add right there to that. Having spent um, two decades as a supervisor patrol and uh, field training before that uh-huh. um, I was surprised because I would ask recruits especially when you get a first phase brand new rookie in the car you want to know what they're capable of and the first question I would ask in that first night would be can you take a life and I was surprised at the number of recruits who had not been approached with that question and had to think about it because you cannot have any sort of perceptual um, uh, uh, line in the sand when you when you can't make that decision in any single situation if you haven't decided that you're able to even take a life and and that's important for training because much of what you've talked about is you know, officers should be aware of this somewhere in the training but that should be a big question that you're asked because if if my if I go to a situation and I've, I've made those lines, had people walking at me with guns and if they cross this line, I'm shooting. Uh, but I had already made that decision long ago right. that I could do that. 
And it, it, it's stunning that the number of not just recruits but officers who hadn't really thought about that. And the time to not think – the time to not have to think about that is when you're faced with it. Yeah. Just interject that. But I, that's a training issue right from – even a, it's a, a selection issue, issue from yeah, the start. Absolutely. That, should, that should come up there. Agree. Well, I used to be one of the <clears> – <throat> excuse me, one of the RBT instructors. And Kevin Navarro and Wenzel put that – they started that program up here in Dallas. And it was phenomenal. And it was for all ranks and all – all units on the department. And I was one of the instructors, so I would put people through the scenarios. And what I noticed quickly is that it would not, it really didn't matter tenure on or what division or what even part of the town you worked. I saw people that are 20, almost 30 years on make just terrible decisions and they had actually worked the streets. Then I would see younger officers that didn't have, they worked up, let's say, no offense to North Central, but they worked up North Central area. They would make proper and better tactical movements and just decision-making better than some of the officers that worked down south for 20 years. It is clearly just purely up to individual. And some people had better training, they had more experience, clearly, but they just did not react properly during training. And I always was kind of terrified I'd see people make decisions in training, and everybody knew that it was, it was actually training. And the worst that was going to happen, you might get stung by a sim round, and you're going to look bad in front of your peers. But there was not many situations. You're not in a life or death situation. It was still a controlled environment. It was fascinating to watch some of the decision makings. And, uh, you know, it, and I think there should be more reality-based training at every department. Well, and okay, and what affects those decisions? Dave, your expertise. What affects which decision? Your, your decision, about? your decision to pull the trigger. Well, I, I think if we, if we go back to sort of the meta big picture, it's it's a moral question. Um, there are people who will not take a life under any circumstance. They would rather die than take a life. Okay, now let me let me step in here because no. I, I had a lot of uh, just I didn't do a lot of personalized training but my wife stuck me in with training some women to shoot mm -hmm. and I, I one of the gals is like i could never kill another human being mm -hmm. i'm like okay now picture this your kid is in your in his bed there's a man in there with a knife to his throat right. would you take that life now and it just the perception or the circumstances would right. dictate the tactics on that so much and they agree they could i go well then don't cut yourself short because it, it might be your child's life that you're protecting. So the circumstances definitely come into play a lot. Yeah, and, and that, that's an interesting point about self-preservation versus preservation of a third party. And I talk, I've talked to officers who say, I will shoot to protect my life and another police officer, but I'll never shoot to protect a citizen. I'm thinking, I think you got that backwards. Yeah. But that's, that's something in terms of this personal shooting policy because they're simply not willing to submit themselves to all of the second-guessing and so on and so forth to protect a third party. And that person shouldn't be on the streets. I'm sorry. Um, so in terms of how that decision occurs, we've talked about this idealized model of the OODA loop and um, perceive, define, decide, act, another different way of, of framing that. But there's also stuff that happens that is decision-making theory suggests and research suggests that many things that we do are not conscious, rational choices, but rather they're things that we do and then we build the justification and the understanding of it afterwards. 
And I have spoken with officers who said, I did not know that I pulled the trigger. It wasn't an AD. It was a proper action to shoot to defeat a life threat, and they made no conscious choice to do so. And that takes me back to a situation in Pacific Division in the summer of 1982. I'm working with a guy named Frank Lippis. And to make a long story short, I'm driver officer. Frank is the passenger officer. And we both went through the academy together. He's his academy mate. We did our probation in 77th Division together. We got trained up by the same guys. We had it down pat about how we were going to approach uh, people who were outside of vehicles. We got a call of a uh, female uh, was getting beaten up or some such thing. And as we're pulling in the into the area, we see two people walking rapidly away from the location. It's like they might be involved. So I'm driving, and we go past them. I whip a U-turn, and as we're making the U-turn, they open up the trunk of a car that was parked on the street, and they either put something in the trunk or took something out of the trunk. I couldn't see because their backs are facing us. And then by the time we whip around, um, they're standing facing us with the trunk open. Now, what we had practiced from day one was Dave's the guard officer. I'm going to walk up, but stay behind the headlights. Frank is going to approach, and he's going to tell the guys, keep your hands where I can see him. Step up onto the sidewalk. Put your hands on top of your head. Then what's going to happen is Dave is going to walk up after they're no longer looking. I'm going to clear the vehicle visibly. Then I'm going to come back, take a guard position. Then Frank is going to tell the first guy, step back off the sidewalk onto the street. He's going to pat him down. Assuming there's no gun, he's going to tell him to step back up, and he's going to tell the second guy, pat him down, then we'll figure out what's going to happen. So that's what I'm anticipating is going to happen. I get out of the vehicle, I stop behind the headlights, and Frank walks up to the two, and he says, hey, man, you got any ID? And I'm like, what's going on? The first guy, the guy to Frank's, the guy to our left, says, yeah, man, I got some ID. And then what he does is he takes his left hand and reaches to about his belly button and pulls, starts to pull up his shirt. He grabs his T-shirt and starts to pull it up as his right hand starts moving to the front of his waistband. I'm thinking there's a gun. Next thing I see is it is a gun. His hand is on the gun. I've already got my gun out, and I am starting to pull the trigger. My first conscious thought was I can't shoot because Frank then jumped on top of the guy to pin the gun before he could pull it out. I won't go into the rest of how he resolved it, but the point is that I... If I would have shot that guy, it would have been, no doubt about it, absolutely legally justified. I made no conscious decision to shoot. My gun was in my hand, and my first conscious thought was, I cannot pull the trigger. And the way that these clamshell holsters worked, which is the type I was still carrying, um, my finger is on the trigger as I'm coming up, and all I'm waiting for is to get my sight picture, and then I'm going to dump this guy. He's 10 yards away, maybe. He didn't even know I was there. I'm, con- I'm convinced because I'm behind the headlights and he doesn't know that LAPD rode two guys to a car. At any rate, so when we think about how this decision is made, once again, we go into that black box. There's things we don't know. I want to get into the pendulum of police bashing mm-hmm. from the 60s up to current. And I know that's, uh, that's five decades there over of uh, we're going to get into, but through the 60s, uh, especially in the later 60s, there was a lot of uh, you know, anti-police rhetoric. There was a lot of political things that were going on that led to that. Uh, and now we're seeing a shift in the last few years, especially, of, of 
of certain types of rhetoric. What can we do to affect this? And also, we have to take into account of how policing has changed because of it. There's been incidents, even going back to the the Rodney King LAPD, and there there's been other events that have happened that have been looked at as kind of watershed moments in the U.S. and in American policing. What is your perspective on on that? That's a big it's question. All encompassing yeah. question there. Um, Twenty words or less, please. <laughs> I'm counting. Um, Well, one of the things we have to understand is that the police exist in the medium of their micro and macro political environment. The micro environment being here in Dallas, basically Dallas City, right? The macro environment being what goes on all across the country. And we have these ebbs and we have these flows that are rooted in events and then we also unfortunately have political hacks by the way on both sides of the aisle who aren't interested in the truth they're interested in their position and so if you if you think about some radical imbecile left-wing weather underground let's bomb things or some imbecilic right-wing kkk or you know kill everybody that doesn't look like me um that stuff matters, and unfortunately, at particular times, those ideologies of idiocy capture notable segments of the public. And so you think back into the 60s and into the 70s, um, where you had primarily left-wing revolutionary groups such as the Symbionese Liberation Army, such as the Black Guerrilla Family, uh, such as a a variety of of different groups. And then you also had unorganized people who just didn't like the police. And, you know, off the pigs was what, you know, a term from the anti-segments, not all. It's back. Segments of the anti-war movement and so on and so forth because we had a crisis an institutional crisis of all institutions in the united states and the police are the most visible representative of government and so the police come in for a hard time and there's something called confirmation bias and confirmation bias is simply that you will pay attention to things that fit with your way of thinking if you want to think the cops are a bunch of rogue thugs who are running around wanting to kill people there's enough evidence out there to, to state that. The problem is, is if you take a deep dive and you look at my book and you look at other places where the evidence is that, no, the cops don't want to shoot people, then you're going to have to moderate that. But if you're not interested in the truth, if you're either a politician or you're someone who is a political, let's just say activist, who doesn't like the police, you're going to harp on that. So what happens is, that takes over in the 1960s and 1970s, and you know everybody's wonderful. The only reason that anybody ever commits a crime is because they were abused or their high school teacher glanced at them the wrong way. You know that was the microaggression, a happy word or not a happy word, a popular word now, but that was running around back in the 60s. It was it just wasn't mentioned. Then what happens is crime starts going through the roof, and we start having all sorts of people who are minding their own business, getting robbed, raped, murdered, so on and so forth, people realize we need the police, we need the criminal justice system, so on and so forth. And so while you have some undercurrents from the left of um, anti-police sentiment, it doesn't really win the day. 
then what happens is crime rates start to drop. Um, it becomes popular to say that we don't need to have a firm hand against crooks. And so the pendulum swings anti-police because after all, um, nobody likes the police. We don't even like the police. And you know how I know that? Because I know that if afterwards we go out and have a beer, you're going to tell me stories about those people in the Internal Affairs Division who are out there hunting heads, who are looking to burn cops, right? So nobody likes the police. And as the perceived need for sound law enforcement dissipates, that's a vacuum into which the anti-police sentiment can creep. Now, I've talked about the left. We also have it from the right, the you know, the KKKs and the neo-Nazis and all that, they think the police are an instrument of oppression from a, you know, centralized government that wants to take all our liberties away and make us, you know, dance like marionettes, so on and so forth. So they're going to be anti-police. And we've had um, right-wing idiots who've murdered police officers over the years. And so consequently, if we want to try to understand it, I think we just need to pay attention to who's making the argument what benefit is it to them, and are they really honest brokers or are they just polemicists? And most of the time, they're blowhards, they're bloviators, and if you pin them down, yes, we do need police because I want my family to be protected, which is an interesting thing that the gang guys crash um, community resources against street hoodlums out in Los Angeles. Um, I would talk to some of these guys, and their job was to know the gangbangers, and the gangbangers hated them excuse me, gangbangers hated LAPD except they liked the gang officer that they knew because they had developed a one-on-one relationship and they knew that if they stepped out of line, LAPD was going to come after them. They didn't like that, but they would tolerate it from their crash guys and they would tell the crash guys, we understand that we need you because we can't always be there to protect our mamas and our sisters. So even the people who are virulently actively anti-cop on a day-to-day basis understand at some level there's a need for police. Um, I mean, that that's my, it's more than 20 words, but it's maybe a, what, a five, seven minute screed about and, it. And if I can add this, I think uh, Dave can attest to this. In the world of academia, you are constantly battling against people that know more than you but have no experience. Well, they don't who, know more, who think they know more. Well, that's what I'm saying is yeah. because they look at the uh, – they get lost in the data and what the data show and what's statistically significant, forgetting that each one of these shooting events where – uh, where the officer wasn't killed. Now, he might have been crippled for life. That's not mentioned. But they lose sight of that. But um, the in, in academia, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a hard-fought battle for those few of us in the field who have experience and write uh, against the, the, the landslide of research that, that is uh, – very knowledgeable and very good, just absolutely no experience to inform it whatsoever. And, and stuff that's missed. So, for example, there was a piece that came out in, well, maybe it's five years ago now, talking about the cops shooting unarmed people. And, you know, when cops shoot unarmed people, um, this is bad and it shouldn't be happening. And the Washington Post database, which is it, it's brilliant. They want a Pulitzer Prize, and I'm glad they did. They deserve it. It's embarrassing that we don't know how many times cops in the United States kill people. Because if you think about it, we've all done the job. Some of you are still on the job. You are an instrument of the state, and you are taking the life of a citizen. 
That is not an inconsequential, unimportant thing. That's a very important thing. I want very strict regulations about when state agents get to take life and that we don't know in an official fashion how many people cops across the United States kill. It's, it's embarrassing. But anyway, so the Washington Post has this data set and these researchers come out and they say, oh my God, we got all these terrible things. The cops are killing all these unarmed people. I said, well, that's interesting. Let's, let's take a deep dive into what goes on here. And it turns out that in a non-trivial number of cases, the person was in fact armed. In one, the person was armed with something about the size of a baseball bat, and they're trying to bash the cop's head in. Don't ask me why it was coded as unarmed. Another one that was coded as unarmed, this guy takes a curtain rod and pops one of the officers in the head and opens up you know, a giant gash, and the guy's bleeding. He defeats a taser. Uh, attempt by an officer another officer kills him at any rate so that's the first thing the second thing is you start reading the cases where unarmed people are killed and in one this knucklehead drowned a, a police canine and then tried to drown the handler and so the handler killed him last time i checked if your head stuck underwater for a while you're going to die that's just as much of a deadly threat as someone trying to shoot you um and so on and so forth. so anyway, so we we did I and a colleague of mine named Lee Slocum, we did an analysis of this Washington Post data and had sort of a rebuttal piece to the big piece about unarmed people and this and that and the other thing. And we were able to demonstrate, for example, there was no racial differentiation in terms of shooting blacks, shooting whites, shooting Hispanics, so on and so forth. But if you look at the citation count of our piece versus the lead piece, that lead piece is cited far more frequently than our piece because academics have a bias that is fundamentally anti-cop. That's, that's the way it is. So all we can hope for is that people will take an honest look and people will listen to what other voices have to say. And I don't mind being interrogated. I don't mind being challenged with, okay, so this is what you said in your data. Let's go ahead and attack you. Okay, fine. I can defend that. Um, so it's not me saying um, I know everything about everything because I sure as heck don't. But what I'm saying is I at least know the right questions to ask. And oftentimes um, academics, members of the press, lots of people don't want to ask those honest, hard questions. Why do you believe there is a bias? Well, unfortunately, in the academy, when I say the academy, not the police academy, but the academic environment, most of the people who go into that line of work tend to lean to the left. Um, also, most of the people who go into the media these days lean to the left. And as I said, if you think about confirmation bias, um, if you lean to the left, you're going to see things that support your argument. If you lean to the right, you're going to be able to find stuff that supports your argument. Most of the press, most of the folks in the academic uh, world lean to the left, so that's how they roll. So let me let me lead in, let me lead into this um, the, to to explain. Uh, Dave knows my academic journey, but uh, during my my. Uh, PhD studies and doing research, uh, of course, a lot of my beginning work was really police-focused use of force. And so a part of putting together your study is you do a, a literature review to inform your work. And you can – it did not take long for me 
in my graduate program to understand just by reading a, a person's name, you know that person, what what they're going to say, how they're going to interpret the data. And every now and then I would come across one that that seemed more honest than another. Confirmation bias is a huge problem uh, because you start collecting the data only for your outcome that you've already have predetermined. But I read... I read this one study, and then I read the same author again, and then the same another study with him as a co-author, and I said, "This I don't know who this guy is, but he gets it. You can read by the way it's written and explained. This guy gets it. That's how I found out who Dave Klinger was. So when I went to a conference, I just walked up and shook his hand, and we've been friends ever since. But I don't. Are you going to tell him that that I bought you food multiple times at Brazilian steakhouses? And beer. And beer. Okay. So you owe me. But anyway, go ahead. And I've been avoiding him ever since. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, but, hey, but it's important. You're in the same room together now, and he's in town. So. Right. Uh, it's important to understand then that in academia, there are certainly these lines of research. And when you are, one of the reasons I think that it tends to lean left is college kids go. I've seen too many people go from kindergarten to PhD, and that's the only world they've ever known and haven't worked, actually worked in a field. So to come across people that have uh, experience in what they study is, is, is rare, but to come across somebody who is, his, is writing in top journals, uh, Dave's research has been written, has been published in top, top journals, and when you can read somebody who can write and challenge the academics, but write in a manner that a cop can read it and say, he gets it. That's, so for anybody who's listening that isn't sure who Dr. David Klinger is and you want to pull it up, I'm telling you somebody from, who came from a policing experience and then now has the academic background that he gets it. I think the, I think the listeners are going to, are going to, catch on to this really quick and it's also looking at it from like a micro versus macro uh point of view there's too many people that are putting together studies like you just talked about that have an agenda they're going to only pull the data that supports what their personal beliefs are as opposed to just pure logic and looking at it from a 360 degree angle right but it definitely comes out not just in how uh people who are fair and take objective looks at the data, how they how they write about it. But you really got to get into the kind of the methods and the data that they pulled and what did they pull. And the reason why they're pulling the data to begin with. Yeah. Right? So and on that point, I mentioned Jim Fife's name earlier, the uh, former uh, NYPD lieutenant who's one of the founders of the study of deadly force. Jim's, unfortunately, Jim passed several years ago, but Jim and I became very good friends. And we, we've written some stuff together. But anyway, Jim is a man of the left. He, he is a, he's a left-leaning, Demo- was a left-leaning Democrat. Um, I am not. I'm a conservative libertarian. But Jim was concerned about what does the data say, period, paragraph, end of story. And if the data says X and he thought Y, then he moves to X. And I have a great deal of respect for Jim. And Jim, when he was alive, had a great deal of respect for me because we were able to 
bring our differences together and let the data speak to us. Similarly, I wrote a, wrote a piece that's been pretty heavily cited with uh, some co-authors. One of them is a guy named Rick Rosenfeld from University of Missouri-St. Louis. He's a professor emeritus. But Rick, once again, a man of the left. But we regularly go out, have beer, uh, have whiskey shots. He's the only, only person that I do that regularly with because I'm not a big drinker. But we, we catch up and see what's going on. And we're, we're working on another piece about a, a very different topic. But we wrote a piece um, about police use of deadly force in city of St. Louis, which shows that once you control for the levels of crimes in communities, police officers are not more likely to shoot in black communities than they are in white communities. I was fully prepared to find that the data shows a racial bias. Rick was fully prepared, even though he went in believing there would be some racial bias, to have a finding that shows there is none. And because of that, we let the data speak and we write the paper because we report what the findings are, period, paragraph, end of story. And that's what we need more of. And there are places and there are times and there's research that will show that there's racial bias because unfortunately sometimes racial bias is involved in certain things just as sometimes sex-based violence just excuse me a bias but what you have to do is you have to be honest about that and not say because i found this in new york city or that in dallas or this in san diego or this in cleveland that that describes everything about how american law enforcement works no, because because life, I mean, everything's nuanced and complex. There's just no bright line that you could place on American policing and say that's just the way it is across the board. Because different parts of the country are different from Northeast is different from Dallas, Texas, and so on. It is. Well, a little bit. Yeah. Come, you know, check out the summers here. Yeah. <laughs> well, you you need to spend a summer in New York with no air conditioning, which is the summers I had because uh, back in the '60s, no AC. And uh, it can be hot and humid in New York. It'd be 100 with whatever percent humidity. It's ugly at any rate. So mindfulness is kind of a new hot button word, right? We, we hear that a little bit more frequently than we have in the past. Mm-hmm. Explain what, what mindfulness is for you. Yeah, um, it, it's interesting because mindfulness has uh, fundamentally two connotations. And one is in the popular world where you're going to, you know, go to yoga class and become mindful about your connection to the earth and all this cool stuff that is cool, but I, I'm not into it. It's not what I study. That's sort of the, the personal level of paying attention, being mindful of the fact that you're a human being on earth and all that kind of stuff. When I think about mindfulness, what I'm talking about and the stuff that I've written about, um, a chunk of this with a colleague by the name of Jordan Pickering, who was a uh, grad student of mine several years ago who's now at Fresno State. At any rate, mindfulness there has more to do with the organizational culture, that what we want to do is we want to create an organizational culture in policing where we are constantly mindful of the possibility, the prospect, that we might find ourselves in a situation where somebody is in crisis and we can resolve that through something less than deadly force. So how is it that we create a policing culture that understands, well, on the one hand, we absolutely need to retain, we need to retain the power to use extreme violence to protect innocent life. At the same time, we want to figure out ways to minimize that. And what we know 
from research um, on a variety of fields besides policing is that if you have a mindful organization, you will have fewer bad outcomes. And if we think about putting bullets into a human body as a bad outcome, at least a suboptimal outcome, because we're harming or maybe killing someone, are there ways that we could, in policing, mimic the organizational cultures of successful organizations that are able to have fewer bad outcomes? And the, uh, the scholars in this field called high reliability organization theory have talked about five aspects of mindfulness. <clears throat> the first one is something called a preoccupation with failure. The second one, a reluctance to simplify interpretations. The third, sensitivity to operations. The fourth, commitment to resilience. And then the fifth, deference to expertise. And so let me walk through these individually. Preoccupation with failure very simply means that you as a member of an organization, refuse to pat yourself on the back and talk about how great you did something. So Dallas SWAT has a pretty good reputation of most of the time doing things in a pretty decent fashion. On the other hand, I know that Dallas SWAT has, uh, let's politely say, gummed up the works in a few situations where officers were injured, where citizens were injured, and it didn't need to happen. And one of the ways that you can reduce this is by being honest in your debriefs and constantly picking on the performance every time you go out on a call. The Dallas SWAT guys should get together and debrief in an honest fashion who did what right, who did what wrong, and figure out a way to improve it. And if you move it out of the SWAT realm to just regular policing, officers should be trained to regularly debrief what they did with their patrol partners, with whoever, and figure out if there's something they could do to improve it. Because next time, even though nothing went wrong this time, next time something could go wrong. So be preoccupied with the possibility of failure instead of thinking about how wonderful you are. Second thing, reluctance to simplify interpretations. One of the things we talked about earlier uh, today is the notion of you have to perceive something and then you have to define it before you can come up with a plan and then act on it. Well, oftentimes, what happens is we define things simply. We say, oh, here's what it is, when in fact it's not that. And then if we go on with a plan of action based upon the wrong definition of the situation, we will have oftentimes a poor outcome. So we need to train officers to be reluctant to come up with a quick definition and run with it without being willing to entertain alternate alternative um explanation. So for example, when I was talking about that guy in the phone booth that Steve Canarium and I almost shot, we didn't know who he was. We didn't identify him as a crook. We didn't identify him as the robber. He could have been the victim. He could have been a bystander. It turns out, in fact, he was the victim. I don't want to get into the weeds, but the point is, had we assumed, oh, there's a guy with a gun at two in the morning on Hollywood Boulevard. He must be a crook. We might well have shot him. So reluctance to simplify interpretations is vital. We need to train officers that. Next thing, sensitivity to operations. Oftentimes we put a plan together and then we run with it, even though the circumstances on the ground change. And so sensitivity to operations simply means that when we are in the midst of something, we 
are always looking for cues that tell us that the situation has shifted. So, for example, I talked about in my shooting, I shoot the guy, and as soon as the bullet impacts, Dennis is able to lock his elbows out. That micro difference between Dennis's elbows being bent and Dennis's elbows being locked out completely changed the complexion of that moment, and I no longer had to pull the trigger additional times. If his elbows would have stayed bent, I probably would have fired additional rounds. So being sensitive to operations. That's just a, this one example, but we could talk about that for days, about looking at the moment and understanding you have to alter your plan. Think about sports. Think about a really good running back. A really good running back knows that the hole that he is going to run through might not open where it's designed in the play. If he runs to the hole where it's first called, he is going to oftentimes run into the back of one of his offensive linemen, or he's going to run into a defensive lineman or linebacker. But if he is reading the blocking scheme, he might see a crease to his left or to his right, and that's what he breaks to. So you have to be sensitive to operations. Commitment to resilience. Commitment to resilience is making sure that you have whatever assets are necessary to deal with the circumstance. And one of the things we haven't talked about today, but everybody should be at least passionately familiar with, is the notion of escalation of force and de-escalation of force. If you don't have the proper tools, if all you've got is your fists and your gun, you might have to shoot. But if you have a taser, you have a 40-millimeter gas uh, uh, beanbag launcher or a 40-millimeter uh, plastic baton round launcher, you're able to do other things besides beat somebody or shoot somebody. And by the way, if you think about all the kit that is in a SWAT van, that's an awful lot of what they are about. It's being resilient, being able to have the appropriate tool to the appropriate moment. So that's something that's really important. And agencies need to train their officers in this about how to work as a team, make sure you have all the appropriate assets on hand. Similarly, um, commitment to resilience has to do with personnel. Um, Steve Claggett, everybody thinks he's wonderful. He's wonderful in some arenas, but in other arenas, he really sucks. He is really crappy when it comes to negotiation. I don't know if this is true or not, but I'm going to assume for the moment. Exactly true. He's not your negotiator, but Steve Bishop is a very patient man. And so what I want to do, if I'm the supervisor in a patrol environment, and I get a call that Steve Claggett is trying to negotiate with someone who's suicidal, I'm going to say, we got to get Steve Claggett out of there. we got to get Steve Bishop there, code quick. Because what I'm doing is I'm making sure that my entity, my squad, has all the, the assets that it needs, and then I'm going to apply the appropriate asset to the problem. And then finally, deference to expertise. Successful organizations are organizations that have leadership and middle managers and everything in between all the way down to the bottom that understand that the fact that they hold a particular rank doesn't mean that they know anything. And so now I'm going to pick on, on Steve Bishop. Steve Bishop happens to be a major. And let's just say Steve Claggett is still on the job and he is a lowly uh, officer. Steve Bishop thinks that he's super cool because he's the major. And he doesn't know the first thing about negotiation. Steve, actually, Steve Claggett actually is a top-notch negotiator. But because Steve Bishop thinks that he's cool because he's got the major bar or the cluster or whatever it is, he's going to go and negotiate with this person and talks this person into killing himself. 
Deference to expertise is knowing what your limits are and making sure that you have the right person beneath you in the organizational chart or above you in the organizational chart to do the right thing. And so the the guys and gals who write about high reliability organizations, they talk about flattening the organization. They talk about understanding that your best person isn't necessarily the person with the organizational authority. And so if I understand that I have certain limitations, but that one of the two Steves has the, the talent to manage that or handle that, I pass it off to them. So authority goes to the person who has the competency, not to the rank within the organization. So the people in the organization with power structurally defer to the person with expertise. And the best example is the SWAT team, Um, or the best that I can think of right now. Um, I would hope that your Chief Garcia, is that his name? Yes, Chief Garcia. I would hope that Chief Garcia, if he shows up at a um, hot call where uh, his patrol officers are dealing with someone who's firing shots inside a house, um, we'll say, I hope he doesn't think that it's because he's the chief, he's going to grab three guys and he's going to run into the gunfight. I hope what he does is he understands that he's going to call SWAT or somebody's already called SWAT. And when the SWAT team shows up, he's going to step aside and let them run the show. So, Well, ego goes into a lot of that, whatever commander is in place, because we've had some commanders here that didn't understand expertise in the field. Yeah, and, and, and like I said, this is a cultural thing. And so it's up to the head of the organization to develop this culture. And then it permeates the culture so that every officer, every single rank understands these five principles and works with these five principles. And then what happens is you have a mindful organization and every member of the organization is mindful because everybody's on the same page. Um, Steve Claggett, my understanding is he was never a sniper. Is that correct? Correct. So if you need to take a precision rifle shot, you're not going to have Steve Claggett take the shot. But at any rate, my, my point is that there are, there, are, there are men and perhaps women in the Dallas SWAT team who have that expertise in precision rifle. They're the ones that are going to take the shot. And so that's, that's the way it goes in terms of having everybody in the organization understand, defer to expertise, be committed to resilience, uh, don't simplify interpretations, be willing to let the changes in the, in the moment dictate what you do instead of your initial plan, and then always, always, always be preoccupied with failure. Think about the mistakes, be honest about that, and rectify them to the extent that you can. You know, the thing I like about this is it can be implemented on the organizational level or the individual level. Yep. Uh, I mean, it's a great, a great template yep. for humans, just yep. individuals, just to better themselves. Absolutely. And so if, if the organization runs that way, uh, at every level, and every officer, every sergeant, every lieutenant, every captain, whatever, understands that, then what you have is you have an effective organization that will be highly reliable. And it will be much better at avoiding officers being shot, avoiding uh, innocent citizens being shot, so on and so forth. So I think it's really important to understand that even though the police have this massive power, um, most cops, as I mentioned before, don't want to shoot people. They want to figure out ways to avoid it. And this is essentially a theoretical toolkit to provide officers with the intellectual means to have an outlook that will reduce the likelihood that they will find themselves in a position where they 
shoot their way out of it or where they themselves get shot. And so, for example, a real simple thing, I talked about there's gunfire going on inside the house. Don't just run in and have a gunfight. That's not a wise thing to do. Um, the more people that get involved, typically, the more problems they're, they're going to be. And so one of the great things that a SWAT team does is you have, at least allegedly, theoretically, a uniform understanding of how we're going to manage this moment as opposed to 10 disparate officers who have different ideas about how to do things. I'll just stop there for now. I tell you, the, the biggest challenge that I think I've ever seen in the Dallas Police Department involving this was 7-7. Mm-hmm. Never before had it, it, we experienced anything like that here. And the guys that handled that situation did a phenomenal job. They mm-hmm. thought outside the box. They were creative. And, and I think that ever-changing circumstances, mm-hmm. I think, was the biggest challenge. I, I can't tell you how many guys I heard saying that they thought there was more than one shooter right. because the echoes off the building right. and and uh, that they – for the longest time, had no idea where the guy was. So I think they did a phenomenal job. Just like uh, the other huge challenge I've seen them have since I've been gone was the the riots, the Antifa riots. Mm -hmm. Um, Phenomenal job on that too. These are things that in my time we never would have expected to to have to experience. Mm -hmm. Nothing as fluid as both of those. Mm -hmm. So hats off. Guys, I think this is a great way to wrap it up. We covered – a wide range of topics. We're over two and a half hours in. Um, Dr. Klinger, David, thank you for making this journey to meet yeah. with us. We've had this My in the pleasure. books for months, and uh, I would love to get you back on uh, sure. at a later time. Sure. And uh, bring Joe yeah, Rogan with you. Bring okay. yeah, bring Joe Rogan with you, and I'll bring Steve Claggett and Major I'll, Bishop. I'll bring the beer. And, yeah, bring the beer, please. I'm in. Yep. <laughs> Guys, thank you all so much uh, for doing this for us. Uh, thank you for supporting this Sissy Officer Foundation. Thank you for having this message. I mean, it, the, the public needs to hear this from experts and people that have actually done the, uh, the research as opposed to just trying to hand ring from the left or from the right and just try to push an agenda. Look at the facts. Look at the data. It might take you to a place that may open your eyes a little bit more. Nice work. You weren't sick.